by Seabrook. And there's that uh, contact. Good pass. Here comes Taves. He's going to look for Hayden right to the goal. He shoots. He scores! John Hayden in his second ever NHL game. Just snapped home his first tally. Great setup by the captain. Hayden finished it. We're tied in Toronto. Get that Don is here. Yeah. No, but seriously, Don is here. I am. <laughs> uh, it's been a while. It has. It's springtime. The earlier, the uh, technically spring, yeah. Late winter, right. early spring. It's been crazy. Right now in my driveway, it's completely clear. Literally five days ago, there was two feet of snow. <laughs> right. Like in between this podcast and the last one, on a Wednesday night, I had to go out in the car at 10 o'clock at night, wait for the plow to come, back out all the snow from the car to the end of the driveway, then back the car out into the road, wait for him to plow the rest of the driveway, and then pull the car in. And this is after we had like a record high, like 70 degree February day, like where it looked like, oh, wow. We had more rain than snow in January, Yep, a record day in February. And then two feet in March. Yep. It's just been a crazy, like, since we went from season, whatever, what, six to seven, it's been nuts. And that's why this is only the sixth episode. (laughs) But in a way, we kind of said we were going to do bi-weekly for a bit. And we've kind of stuck to that bi-weekly schedule. Hasn't always necessarily been both of us here. Right. Sometimes it's been just me. Sometimes it's me and Paula. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, now it's me and Don. And then Anthony will be home soon. He'll be in the mix if Don can't make it. Oh, there you go. You know, Anthony can fill in. But hopefully the two of us are pretty much back uh, to a pretty much weekly schedule at this point. Don settled in at his job. His daughter's healing up. Hopefully there won't be any more snow. And right. we'll get back on track. Two weeks ago, we had Jeff Passan and Blake Harris on the podcast. Today, Katie Baker from Ringer, formerly of Grantland, now with Ringer, joins us. She's going to talk about kind of her new role at Ringer. Remember when she was at Grantland, she was their hockey columnist. Right, yeah. She didn't really write about hockey at at Ringer. Okay. So what does she do there? Well, we'll find out. And then the other interview is with a guy named Mike McMahon, who is a senior college hockey writer for collegehockeynews.com. Be the one time a year where we... Talk some serious college hockey. Uh, we'll do that with Mike since the uh, NCAA hockey tournament starts uh, tomorrow, Friday. As we're recording on Thursday, I have the Katie Baker interview done. I'm going to interview Mike at 2 o'clock p.m. tomorrow, and then this should go up. So by about 3 o'clock, this will go up, and the first game of the NCAA hockey tournament will be starting um, around then. So that's the plan uh, with uh, those the interviews today. Uh, the book club, we're going to look at a classic book, uh, but this will be the last week of that because next week we're going to start our first kind of official book club book of the year, and it's a book by Tom Verducci called Cubs Way. Uh, I talked to Mr. Verducci this week. Uh, he pushed me off to uh, the proper contact. He was actually someone we had worked on the book club before, 
with uh, John Wertheim's book. Um, and I talked to her. We should have a copy to give away. Uh, so this will be the last week of the book club where we look back at a book. Uh, so we'll do that in between the interviews. I think we'll talk about uh, Paterno today because that's got a great story to it. And okay. We can talk about the saga of that book and being on Deadspin and John Wertheim's involvement and all that. So that'd be a good one to close out the kind of classic book club series as we focus next week on the Cubs book. And then we'll end the show like we always do uh, with one last thing. But since we're both here, it's three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right. So two weeks ago, Jeff Passon was on this show, and he talked me into watching the World Baseball Classic. I've actually flipped it on occasionally. And I haven't stuck with it long at thank all. Thank God he did. Boy, was that awesome. Yeah. I've never like I've watched the World Baseball Classic before and always thought, boy, this is stupid. It's a tournament they created. Nobody in Team USA cares. All these guys from all these other countries care way more. You know, just get to the Dominican versus Japan final and get this over with and get me out of here. Not this year. Team USA was balling. Their lineup was awesome. They didn't get the best pitchers to play. But they got damn good pitchers. Stroman pitched, what, seven no-hit innings in the final last night. They played two classic games against Dominican Republic. They split them. They won the important one in the uh, semifinals of the tournament. Um, They won a must-win game to get into the semifinals. Uh, They won semis, obviously. And then last night, they, they blew out Puerto Rico in the final. But finally... USA wins the World Baseball Classic, and what a cool tournament that was. And I think it's a turning point for the World Baseball Classic in the sense that other players seen how much players enjoyed the World Baseball Classic. I think Mike Trout already said he's playing next time. You okay. know, that that's something he wants to do. Yeah, sure. You know, and it works so well for baseball because baseball spring training, what do they do? They play games. Right. They just wake up every day in Florida or Arizona and play a game. So why not go with a bunch of dudes and play for your country in a game that matters? Like, why sit around Florida? And I think that's finally kind of connecting with players from the U.S. And then there's just the passion of the Latin players. I mean, the Dominicans. I think it was Robinson Cano hit a home run against the U.S. And he practically tore the Dominican Republic logo off his jersey around in the bases. (laughs) I mean, the pride those guys have in, like, their countries and playing for their countries. It's, like, something that I think finally our team said, like, oh, yeah, we love our country, too. Like, we have pride, too. We want to win this, too. And you know who was awesome was Eric Hosmer. Um, he plays for the Royals, obviously. And, like, I remember watching the Royals on their two runs and just, like, being so – thinking he's such a cool player, like – Wow, this guy is like a badass baseball player, and he was in the baseball classic. Adam Jones was fantastic. Just a great tournament. I had a lot of fun. 
Every inning I watched of it, I was glad I was watching it. Bad job by Major League Baseball playing the final in Los Angeles. That shouldn't have ended at 1 o'clock. You got to play that final in Miami and put it on at 7 o'clock. But it's the same old shit with baseball, right? Games are on too late, on too late. Yeah, It's, it's always that way. Speaking of that, um, I could use this as one last thing, but I don't have a ton to say about it. But I know they just rolled out or they tried in practice rules where if extra inning games. Yeah, no, they did this in the tournament. Okay, that's where it was. Yeah. That's ridiculous. It was horrible. I am not a baseball guy. It led to bunting and stuff like that. And I, I, I do think they have a problem with time, like you said. Either the start times or just the games are too long. But and I they think did that's it, more of a problem with middle relievers. I right? think with the tournament, they just didn't want to strain the pitchers. Okay, you that know, makes They don't sense. want a 17-inning game and then the... So it's like there was rules like the first game the pitcher could only pitch sixty pitches. And in this type of tournament, that makes sense, right? But it's a th- even consider that for the it's, regu- it doesn't translate. It doesn't at no. all. And uh, I think the bigger problem with baseball is middle relievers, and I think most people kind of agree with that. Like there's just so many, so much pitching, so many pitching changes. So uh, find find a way to maybe legislate I think that a little. What bit. you got to do is the pitchers have as much time as they need to warm up in the bullpen. Sure. When you get out of the bullpen, Start come throwing. to the mound and let's pitch. Yeah, why not? Why do you need to pitch 10 more throws on the mound? I mean, I know they talked about... Because, I mean, you can't take strategy out of the game. Like, right. you can't tell the... Like, can you really tell... Do you really want a game where the there's only three pitching changes or something? No, like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's the way to do it. I just... I mean, the pitching changes are what make it long, I feel like. So um, let's speed those yeah. up. Don't right? go to commercial every time. Like, yeah, just get the guy out of the bullpen yep. and let's throw the next pitch. I know they talked about, uh, and maybe it's still a rule. I've just never seen it enforced. Where if the guy like steps out of the box, isn't there technically an amount of time where he's got to get back in before the guy can throw? And it's kind of like in hockey where they had that rule about faceoffs. Like if you weren't ready in the faceoff, the guy was just instructed drop to drop it, the puck, yeah. which went away. Like right. it lasted half a season and went yeah. away. Like everything else they right. come up with, that's good. They just stopped doing it. <laughs> uh, yeah, but no, like it's a great tournament, and it's too bad that young American baseball fans didn't get to celebrate the win because yeah. it was like one o'clock in the morning the last out. And everything you said about it, uh, they're playing the game anyway. Why not have them play in a tournament like this? Uh, it's not an Olympic year. Uh, why not? Why not do something like this? Baseball. I mean, I know it's probably the most, maybe uh, most mentally taxing games because the length of the season and all that but it's not the most physically taxing unless you're a pitcher so why not have these guys go out and play some more and get like you said they'd be playing anyway right speaking of tournaments we're going to talk about the ncaa hockey tournament later with mike mcmahon but the ncaa basketball tournament is down to 16 teams um i'm always curious don how much of the ncaa basketball tournament did you watch i haven't watched any of it yet not one second no you know what it was? It was March Madness without the madness. Okay. No overtime games the whole first week, four days. Okay. No buzzer beaters. And uh, there was some upsets. The number one overall seed, uh, Villanova lost, but they lost to Wisconsin. I mean, Wisconsin was in the national championship game two years ago. Okay. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, my God. Right. You know, Duke lost, but they lost to... South Carolina, a team from a power conference. And in a roundabout way, they lost because of that silly bathroom law, you could argue. Uh, That game was supposed to be played in Greensboro, North Carolina. But because of the bathroom law, it was moved to somewhere in South Carolina. And Duke lost to South Carolina. 
on essentially a road game. So the stadium was filled with South Carolina and North Carolina fans. Yeah, I haven't even seen many highlights of it. I mean, the biggest highlight I, I, I saw... There's, a no, hi- there's no, like, replayable shot or anything. Right. I saw I saw pictures of some kid crying in the stands. Like, it was really... Yeah, that was the Villanova kid, I think. Okay. So, and then there was a... Like, the big story was, like, did they show him too much? <laughs> really? You know, like, that's... Did the, they overexpose a poor kid? Is that what they're getting Yeah, at? you know, but... Yeah. I guess when that happens... Like, what it leaves you with is a second weekend, allegedly, of, like, really good matchups. Okay. You know, like, today, for example, these games will be over by the time anyone hears this, but there's four games. There's a three versus a seven, which is Oregon versus Michigan. Everyone knows Oregon, Michigan, right? You got a one versus four, Gonzaga versus West Virginia. That should be a great game. The spread's three. Spread was one and a half in the first game, three in that game. Purdue plays Kansas, another 1-4, minus 5.5. And And then you have Arizona, a 2-seed, playing Xavier, 11-seed. That's a a 7.5-point spread. So the biggest spread today is 7.5 points. You got two 1-seeds playing, two 4-seeds playing, which is the highest remaining seed uh, one can play in this game. You know, you got a 2 going, a 3 going, so a lot of good teams. And then tomorrow, Friday... Which some people will have heard, will hear the show. You got two versus three, an even spread. Kentucky versus UCLA. Uh, you got North Carolina one playing Butler four, and you got Baylor playing South Carolina, the team that beat Duke. That's a three and a half point spread, and Florida number four playing Wisconsin number eight, one and a half point spread. So I guess when there's not a lot of madness, you get close games. But one thing that's missing from that is Cinderella. I mean, Butler and Xavier are the, I guess, smallest teams, but they're both in the Big East now. They're not mid-majors anymore. Right, Butler was a four, so it's not like they were... I mean, Xavier's the lowest seed left. Then. Right, an 11. You know, but you could they were an at-large. I mean, they weren't like an automatic qualifier from some small conference. They were one of the last at-large teams in the, in the tournament. So, I mean, you know... Just, just not. It's just not. It just hasn't been one of those years. So we'll see if going from here, it's crazy. I always love the first two days of the tournament, and they just didn't deliver this year, and that that happens. Yeah, you know, just a lot more forty-five. You know, forty-point wins by the one seeds or twenty-five point wins by the two seeds. And I guess it got a little better later in the weekend. You know, two twos lost and. Some good teams lost. I'm not saying they didn't. It's just a matter of who they lost to. Right. You know, and there, there just isn't that that VCU story this year or what Butler was, was before right. Butler became Butler or what Gonzaga was before Gonzaga Gonzaga. You know, that's just not there this year. So do you think you'll watch any of the tournament this weekend? Is it on your radar going forward at all? Um, It's not exactly on my radar, but it's the type of thing where I'll stop on it if I, if I, if I flip by it. Uh, I usually end up watching some of the final four games, so, so not there yet, but I'll probably get there. Last thing, and we'll get out of here on this. Tom Brady got his jerseys back. I heard you. I, didn't, I forgot he was missing the other one, older one too. I had no idea about that. Like yeah. I totally missed that story. I think maybe I I remember that being a thing last whatever year it was. Was it last year? No. When was the last? I mean, I always knew about the ring of the owner who got taken by Putin 
That's right. Yes, that's right. But Tom Brady's stolen Super Bowl jerseys are back. The FBI in Boston announced that jerseys worn by Brady in Super Bowl 51 and this February, Super Bowl 50, what is that, 4, uh, were returned to Gillette Stadium on Thursday. A quote, we know how much this means to the Patriots and football fans everywhere. and We are honored to be able to bring these jerseys back to Foxborough. Uh, that's Harold H. Shaw, the FBI Boston Division Special Agent in Charge. The FBI said it would have no further comment about the investigation as the matter remains ongoing. Uh, Brady's 2017 jersey obviously went missing after the game. Uh, Mexican authorities searched the property of tabloid journalist Martin Mauricio Ortega, where they found the jersey, along with a Brady jersey that disappeared after the Super Bowl what did I say that was? Oh, wait. what? Help me out here. XL, so that's 44, right? XL is 4D. Right, and IX is 4. IX is 9. Oh, 9. It is? Yeah, IV is. Oh, IV is 4. Yep. Fuck. 49. <laughs> uh, a Denver helmet was also found, and I guess they assumed that helmet was Von Miller's. Okay. Somehow they figured that out. What was he going to do with them? Ortega has not been charged in the case and has not commented. Uh, we want to thank the FBI and the Mexican authorities and many different local agencies that were involved in the investigation and the recovery of Tom's Super Bowl 51 jersey. We appreciate the effort of everyone involved. I look forward to returning the jersey to Tom when he gets back to New England. That's Robert Kraft. And that's from the Associated Report and ESPN. Associated Press and ESPN.com News Services. So, now, here's the first question I have. Do you have any problem with the FBI spending time and resources <laughs> finding these jerseys? <laughs> uh, I mean, if somebody stole a bar of gold or something, or if someone stole like a famous picture, I guess people wouldn't say anything. Why? Do people have problems with this? Yes, I've heard people complain. People say, well, how much money did the FBI and the government spend? And this wouldn't have happened if, what their, if it was a Picasso their friend Trump wasn't in president. Oh, I don't know about that. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't have a problem with it. Somebody stole something that is invaluable. I mean, right. It's a historical... I mean, it just happened this year and whatever, three, two, three years ago, but it's historical. It's... I want to know what the dude was going to do. And they might have taken down something bigger. I mean, they went looking for one thing and found three, and that could lead to maybe the fall of some bigger conspiracy. Yeah, who knows? Right? Because one stolen jersey is one stolen jersey. Two stolen jerseys and a stolen helmet sounds like a criminal conspiracy to me. Yeah. I mean, at least... I mean, it had to be an inside job. Obviously, the guy was at all these Super Bowls. Yeah, I guess this guy, this... uh, What I said his name... Um, Mauricio something, right? Uh, journalist Martin uh, Mauricio Ortega. I guess he's like credentialed by the NFL every year. And I mean, he must have been the guy who stole it, right? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, he had it and he was actually credentialed to the game. And I still, I just doesn't wanna, look good for him. I, I can't, I can't figure yeah. out what his plan was because he can't sell that any legitimate way. So you'd have to find someone. Yeah, what do you hope that you can just sell to someone who's willing to pay 50 cents on the dollar just to, like, keep it at their house? And... Right, and they can't display it, really, other than to their friends. And But doesn't no this of... happen with art? Like, don't people steal Picassos and rare pieces of art that they know damn well they can't yeah, display? Yeah, I, I can't imagine doing that either because, 
I can't imagine buying it, and I can't imagine stealing it because you can't sell it, like we said. And if you buy it, if you do find a buyer, the buyer has no way to verify that it's. I mean, who's he going to go to to verify that it's real? You know, like possibly the least cultured part of me is when it comes to art. Yeah, I could not imagine going to a museum and looking at a picture on the wall. Like I just don't get it. Adam Carolla has an interesting take on that. He says, "Is it art that I look at and I couldn't do? Like if you look at a painting of like." something real like a person or something it's like okay i could not do that but if you go to there and you look at like a picture something of like four squares yeah. or something like that it's like wait wait i can do this one i'm not sh- I, so i don't get this one it's like not as impressive if i can do it or like where it looks like the guy just slaps shit around yes you know like that's always his like uh take on yoko ono like why she's not impressed with her he's like i can do what she does her music is really good <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I love her singer her songs I mean, she sings oh. Maybe we should go out to her today. <laughs> that was, that's one of like a drop on Stern is like one of her songs. And it's just like the most annoying screeching yeah, scream yeah. ever. So, Well, good for Tom. I'm glad he got a jersey back. Sure. Yeah. That's bullshit. Finally, something went his way. <laughs> yeah. It's about time. But you got to wonder, like, Matt Ryan's jersey was stolen. You know that would have never been found. <laughs> right. Or they would have had it, and then all of a sudden, the whole investigation would fall apart there at the end. They had a lead for two quarters of the investigation, <laughs> and the third and fourth quarter were a giant bust. <laughs> all right, well, since I'm bombing, I guess that's it for uh, three things. All right, so we're going to take a break. Uh, we'll come back with Katie Baker, uh, and then Don and I will be back with uh, the book club. <laughs> All right, our next guest is from the New Jersey, named after Chad Pennington, and is a graduate of Yale. She is a writer for Ringer and is making her eighth appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Katie Baker. How's it going, Katie? Hi, good. How are you? Very good. How is Ringer.com? It's going well. Um, We recently had our food week, which was fun. Um, so it's kind of funny because I, um, I'm like the old lady, like at the company, I feel like, I mean, um, it's just a lot of really smart young folks (laughs) and I read the Slack chats and I don't know what they're talking about half the time. And, um, I'm not even that old, but it's been really fun. (laughs) Well, I'm pretty chummy with, uh, Brian Curtis. He's a good friend of the show. A good friend of mine. And that's true. Yeah, he's got me beat. That's true. <laughs> yeah, he is. And uh, I almost feel like you're the Brian Curtis. You are to Ringer what Brian Curtis was to Grantland. Here's what I mean. When you were at Grantland, I knew you wrote about hockey 90% of the time. I knew articles coming from Katie is probably going to be about hockey large percent of the time. At Grantland, Brian Curtis, I had no idea what his next column will be about could be anything uh following ringer and katie it seems like you are very much taking the writing role maybe that brian had there where one day you're writing about francona like your most recent one or you're talking about basketball or food like you said you guys had food weeks you had a food column you had a television column i mean i'm just going down the list here and i haven't repeated it a sport or a topic yet? 
It very much feels well, like um, what Brian did for <laughs> Grantland. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, um, Brian is, remains at the ringer and is, um, I'm flattered by any comparison to him because he's brilliant. And I definitely have had some like 3 a.m. moments from working on some story where I'm like, okay, what would Brian Curtis write? <laughs> um, and I totally mean that. Um, and so anyway, um, but yeah, I have um, definitely been writing on a variety of topics, um, trying to focus on longer features without totally, um, you know, not totally at the expense of kind of doing shorter things here and there um, and more just like essays, but um, have definitely been doing, you know, some profiles of athletes in various sports and coaches. um, And yeah, it's been fun to do. As a result, I'm like totally out of the loop with with the NHL compared compared to the past, but I'm excited to uh, pay pay some more attention during the playoffs. Well, like, when you worked on Grantland, I'm sure if someone asked you, like, hey, what do you write about at Grantland? You said hockey. When someone says to you, what do you write about at Ringer? What do you say? I usually say, like, I, you know, I'm a, a features writer, Feature writer um, right. you know, which people that aren't journalists, people are like, okay, what does that mean? Um, but, yeah, I mean, I guess I would just say I'm, I'm, I'm looking to write. I mean, I think in a perfect world, like, if I, if I could find the most perfect – topic for me it would be like you know at some intersection between sports and business or technology or you know this like I, I like stories that um that have a little bit of a, a friend in each category but um you know sometimes that's not to say that like everything I write is like that that's kind of like my my ideal um so if anyone wants to send me ideas I'm always looking for them but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just usually say that I, I try to work on kind of longer features and, um, about people and places and that sort of thing. Well, I'm curious a little bit about your process and you gave us a little bit of insight into it there, but where do your ideas come from? Like, how do you go from, you know, writing about the wizards rise to Terry Francona? Like where do those two different ideas come from? Is it everyone's sitting around and this is the culture of ringer and everyone's pitching ideas and you're like, yeah, let me get on that one. Or is it the opposite where you're pitching the idea of, Hey, I thought about doing something on Terry Francona. Like what's the process in generating these ideas? I'd say like, um, kind of two things. Like one, it's sort of a mix between that happening and, you know, editors kind of thinking about things and and thinking about writers that would be good for them and coming to me. Um, and then, you know, I kind of, every now and then we'll send along a bunch of pitches of my own. Um, and I try to, you know, have all sorts of topics represented. Um, but then, you know, from there, like, let's say, okay, great. We've got a bunch of ideas. Like at that point, honestly, a lot of it comes down to like sending, you know, I have these sort of, um, it's kind of cyclical. Like I just finished, I just finished, you know, almost like a few months almost of like, going on a lot of reporting trips, writing a lot of profiles. Um, it was sort of like when it rained, it poured. And then, you know, pretty soon, AKA, you know, now I'm back in the cycle of like, now I get to send out a million emails pleading with people to let me write about them and see if anyone says yes. And, you know, so to some extent it's, um, you know, we have all these ideas, but if some of them aren't going to work out access wise or just, you know, don't pan out, then you have to kind of go down the list. So, you know, there's always kind of a, I think 
when things are going well, you've got, you know, a couple of things that you're juggling in the air and, and there's sort of something on the horizon, but sometimes you fall into lulls where you're, you know, kind of trying to do, you know, shorter things while trying to line up something um, more significant. One more kind Not of... Not that the short things aren't significant, but you know what right. I mean. Right. <laughs> no, I do. One more Grantland versus Ringer kind of thing here. When you were at Grantland, uh, you weren't a parent. Now you're at Ringer. We're both young parents in the sense that we haven't been it for very long. Not that we're young in age, but how has been being a parent changed your writing style, your perspective, or what you do in general? If it has at all, I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily changed like my writing style. I think like it's definitely. I mean, it's I, it's definitely changed. You know, my daily life. Like I used to kind of be a night owl. Um, and now I'm much more likely to like go to bed at seven and wake up at one yeah, <laughs> because I'm just so yeah. exhausted by, um, which is, you know, so, um, those sorts of little things. And then, you know, obviously anytime I'm traveling for work, it's, you know, it's not the same as before when I just kind of left and, you know, I was gone and it was traveling and it was fun and it still is fun. Um, but there's obviously other considerations now. So, um, my husband's amazing. Um, he has a kind of a flexible part-time job. So he's able to, um, you know, when I, when I travel, he's able to watch our son and, um, he's just like, he's awesome. Um, so that is, you know, enables me to go on those trips and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it's fun. I mean, I, I definitely, um, the things I read now are probably different. I'm, I'm always reading either like children's books or, you know, some like WebMD article on like a, a an ailment that I've come convinced my son has. <laughs> so um, that that dominates a lot of my day. I don't want to be too personal, so you can skip this one if you want, because I didn't ask you ahead of time. But is if you were to say one thing, like Katie Baker, the parent, what's she like? What what would it be? I'm just curious. You don't have to answer if you don't want. Um, no, no, no. I'm definitely very like goofy like my husband always jokes that my son and I have the same sense of humor um yeah like I just that's probably how I am the most I'm very goofy I'm always like singing like making up songs and um trying to get him to do like weird movements (laughs) um you know I like to crawl into his like pp (laughs) play hide and seek as much as he does so that would probably be my answer what about you well, I was going to say one thing that's very similar between us is I'm constantly singing songs and replacing words in the songs with my daughter's name. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, uh, like the other day, it was Paula Struck instead of Thunderstruck. So, <laughs> I was singing that she's been Paula Struck the whole time, and she thinks that's really goofy. Um, my, I think my favorite thing at this point is, like, that every time she sees me, she still smiles. Like... People yeah. say, people say like, oh, I love that age, or I love this age, or that goes by fast, or this goes by fast. And I kind of want to experience the whole part of it, like from zero to, I don't know, 60, whatever, however long I make <laughs> yeah. it while she's alive. But I think the one thing I'll miss the most about this age is just that, like, I can pretty much do, say, just about anything. And every time she sees me, she smiles. Like, so I think that's kind yeah. of a unique part about this age that, like I know, like fourteen, when I pull up to like school to pick her up, she's not going to be smiling. You know what I mean? But right, that doesn't right. mean I'm not yeah. excited 
to pick her up when she's 14 and then embarrass her at the school or whatever. You know, I'm looking forward to that stuff too. So. Well, it's funny because I, I just visited some friends who have like a two and a half year old and to, and she's in the stage where she's very aware and very excited about like her growing independence. And I'm like, rock on little woman. Like you're an autonomous creature. Like that's awesome. But it's still also like really hard not to be offended when you're like, Hey, like, can I come see your room? And they're like, no. <laughs> and you're like, and like at one point I was, I was holding her baby brother and I was like, you know, talking to him and saying, you're my friend. And she said, no, he's my friend. And I said, oh, well, you're my friend too. She said, no, I'm not. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, that really hurt my feelings. But you know, I, they're just learning that they can say no to things. It's like, it has nothing to do with you, but it's so funny. You can, when it happens, you're like, Hey, <laughs> My older younger brother has a baby that's almost exactly one year older than mine. So I can always kind of look one year into the future. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, fi- yeah like, totally. Yeah. So, and I've noticed that my nephew is very much right now, like entering terrible twos, like just about, he's not quite two yet, but he's already developing like those, those, uh, kinds of, so I, it's, it's, I can always kind of look into the future. You know, like one year. Yeah, so it's I know kind what of, you mean. It's kind of perfect. One thing I talk with Brian about, and I'm curious to see what you think, is how has the Ringers' involvement with politics in the last year made you feel? What What is your reaction to how political uh, the site has been? Been. I think so. I mean, I get my own involvement in it was that um, before the election, um, I went to. To, uh, an Elizabeth Warren uh, like set of rallies in uh, I live really close to the Nevada border, um, and and then like a few days later to a Donald Trump rally, and it was like right before the actual election, and I wrote about uh, Nevada as a you know swing state and a state with interesting demographics, um, and I thought that's kind of like a, a I think that's like a good example of like the kind of coverage we're trying to do, like where. Um, it's, you know, trying to find something that's interesting. And, you know, I think of it as like, we're kind of like an online magazine in some senses. Um, obviously we have a lot of things that are, you know, multimedia, but just in terms of the stuff that I'm working on, kind of how I think about it in my mind. Um, and, you know, we've had other, um, I know that like from just from talking to my editor when we were talking about ideas, um, we're trying to find things that are like, not necessarily has to be some like crazy unique angle, but maybe like an interesting person or, you know, I guess just like approaching it in the same way we would approach, you know, you were asking about idea generation earlier, you know, sometimes we do these like theme weeks and I think they're, it's really fun because you just see how people like approach things from different angles and um, just bring their creativity into it. Um, and that's a, you know, food is obviously much more important than, topic than politics, um, in my personal life, but, um, so not to totally equate them or, but, um, you know, I, I think like, it, I think we would be best served to bring that same kind of mentality to political coverage. Cause I, I think it can't, we can't really like escape. Like, I think, I think the way we talk about things and the way we try to position ourselves as like interested people interested in a whole lot of different things and, we're trying to bring that to the readers. Like it's hard to like ignore politics. Um, 
So, you know, and I think you can find ways to cover it that are, um, you know, interesting and um, value added. Yeah, I, I just think that politics carries with it a burden, the burden of, you know, a, how divisive it can be. And, like, we just had an election where it was like 63, people, 63 million people voted for one person, 61 million or whatever voted for the other. So that leaves almost 200 million to vote for anyone. And, you know, uh, I know I, as someone who politically has felt a little bit abandoned in the sense that I really don't consider myself liberal. Uh, I lean a little bit more right, but I certainly wasn't hanging Donald Trump signs up down the road. I kind of felt like, uh, I think like a lot of New York Republicans just kind of like, you know, this isn't what we were raised on. This isn't what we wanted to represent kind of lost in that, but also like not necessarily finding a home. It's a, it's a problem with the country. I think when you only have these two choices and I think that I always think back to Michael Jordan's thing of like, you know, like, uh, Oh, you know, Republicans wear shoes too, or whatever his quote was. I don't want to misquote him. I don't know if he said Republicans or something else, but that was his general point. What do you think about with the young website? Like, do you think that it just kind of not that big of a deal? Like, because certainly the ringer's tone has lent itself to a certain direction. I'm not saying that direction is right or wrong at all, or that there's a problem with that. It just has. And do you worry about the 61 million people or the 60 million people that didn't fall that way? Um, no, I mean, honestly, I don't like, I don't worry about it. I think I would hope that, you know, some portion of the 61 million people, um, are still looking to like read our NBA coverage or whatever, right. which, you know, sometimes our NBA coverage is going to address the things that the players themselves are saying and feeling. So, um, you know, I think you can't really like carve out, um, the topic entirely. Um, but honestly, like from, from my perspective, like it's, you know, not only am I constantly being told that like the most important thing for me to do is come up with great ideas for, you know, stories and projects, um, and not to necessarily, you know, and to leave the worries about like page views and, um, those sorts of things, like to the people that are, you know, supposed to be doing that like that's kind of how I approach the political thing it's like you know, I I have like an I you know an idea that I'm working on right now and it's about a person who I think is really interesting in this current climate so you know I think there's a way to tell that story without angering a reader potentially um right and I think if you know I think I have a lot of trust in like the my colleagues and their opinions and um so I you know I think you know, that said, obviously, um, it's important just in general for everyone to recognize, like, the bubbles that they might live in or um, the, you know, the fact that they might not realize, um, you know, they might, they might not have kind of encountered, um, you know, people and um, that have reasons for thinking the way they do. So, um, but, you know, that's like any reported story, like, hopefully a good job of, um, you know, seeking those things out and finding the, the fundamental truths and that sort of thing. One thing I think I can really appreciate and really respect, and I think that it's been kind of a, this show is like, yeah, this show here, 
podcast John right now. It's about sports, but really what it's about is the people and the things that I think are interesting. You know, I've never pitched anyone who I didn't think was interesting to come on, and I never asked anyone to talk with me about something that I didn't think was interesting. And I've never necessarily let the quote-unquote fact that it's a sports podcast limit what that might be. You know what I mean? Like, I've had Larry Sabato on uh, to talk about an amazing book he wrote about John F. Kennedy, and I've had Artie Lang on to talk about the book he wrote about his drug addiction, or Brett Martin on to talk about The Difficult Men, the book that he wrote about the anti-heroes on television. You know, and then obviously I've also had, you know, John Wertheim on to talk about the book he wrote about uh, you know, how do you even describe what that book is about? I don't know. Uh, about uh, uh, score. It's called Scorecasting. It's it's like uh, uh, what's uh, yeah, like the uh, what's the number? Yeah, like it's not just, paper metrics, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. It's just uh, what's that? What's the uh, non-sports version of it? They uh, um, they got a book. Oh, um, Freakonomics. Freakonomics, yes, Freakonomics for sports. Thank you for helping me stumble through that. Yeah. I should have picked the last. Uh, I should have said, or did <laughs> stop me from having SL Price on and talk about his El Equipa book. That would have been easier. Um, <laughs> I, I appreciate well, I, that. I, I thought you, know, I thought you were going to mention John Wertheim's, um, like his hero, like a tennis book that's just about like one match. Um, that got oh yes, yeah, that was released like about like before. A yes, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he also, you know, he also uh, was the ghostwriter on Al Michaels' book, uh, and he came out and talked about that oh, project nice. too. Uh, Wertheim, he he does a lot. I don't know how much, you know, Yale guy, I guess. You know, he figures out a way to find a twenty fifth hour in the day, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think I respect all that, like the idea of like Katie thinks this guy is interesting, so she's going to write about that. That in, that interests me in turn. You know what I mean when you know yeah, when I you mean, know that's no, motivation. Like, I mean, that honestly is like some, that's like direction we get like from. I mean, like our editor in chief, Sean Venesey, who's um, you know a, a brilliant human. Um, but he says that a lot. He's like, I want people to I want people to like be able to cultivate their kind of like idiosyncratic obsessions because that's obviously going to make for like good writing when you have like someone writing about something that's important to them. So, you know, not obviously, you know, that's a, it's, it's fun to figure those things out and stumble upon them. And obviously not everything you write is going to be, you know, your, your perfect like wheelhouse. But, you know, I think just in general that informs like when I'm trying to come up, you know, I, I feel like it's hard for me to come up with ideas. I get very like down the rabbit hole or I'm like, this has been done or, you know, and I'm always kind of trying to think, okay, like what, what's interesting to me? Like, what are the things that I would have put up on my Tumblr, you know, almost 10 years ago, which is a scary thing to think about. Um, and then kind of going from there and, um, you know, sometimes the answer is getting a little more mainstream um, and finding the thing that's actually, you know, it might be so interesting to you, but it's like, you know, does anyone really care? Um, and try, trying to find things that have a balance between um, informing people and, and, you know, but also being something that they they kind of know enough about that they want to read about to begin with. <laughs> so many of the personalities at Ringer who write for the website also have podcasts. Has there ever been a topic or anything you thought of that you might want to dip your toes into podcasting at all? I, I This is like 
definitely a joke. So don't like, um, but I, I've definitely emailed Shay Serrano at one point being like, we, we should do a parenting podcast. <laughs> um, it just, I love his, like, I love what he writes about his family and his kids and his wife. And, um, and I just think it would be really funny, but on the other hand, I'm not, I'm not much of a podcaster, but I mean, um, I, I would love to come up with sort of some ideas of uh, Brian Curtis, once again, has done a couple of things that are like, you know, like one time podcast, right. like yeah. about a, a, sing, a single topic. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the kind of thing, like I could, you know, that my like weird research obsession type stuff could lend itself to. And I will say like I was down in, um, the Los Angeles office a couple of weeks ago, um, when I was doing some interviews for food week and I did a little bit of an audio segment, um, with Danny Chow and with Zach Mack, who's one of our, um, podcast guys. And it was just so cool to see that side of things, like to be part of like a production. And, um, Zach was extremely patient with me and to a lesser extent, Danny, not that he was less patient with Danny, but that he, he didn't need to be quite so patient with Danny. Um, as he did with me, but it was just really cool to see how that's all put together. And, um, and it made me want to like be more, you know, come up with ways to find a story where that's like the best medium to, um, you know, produce it. Yeah. I've been doing a hockey podcast this week, this year with, uh, Adrian Dater. Um, and, uh, we were talking about the summer and I said, I don't really want to do podcasts in the summer, but what I would love to do is do a documentary on like, like a podcast documentary on the Chris Drury goal uh, that he scored against the Rangers with 7.7 seconds to go in the playoffs in 2007. <laughs> so it's a 10 year anniversary of that, of that season. And the Sabres did uh, a documentary. I don't know if you remember the Sabres and the senators were kind of rivals for two years there. And um, it was uh, Chris Neal, I think blindsided Drury on a hit in February and uh, it was a big line brawl, and Marty Baran and uh, Ray Emery had a fight, and uh, Andrew Peters was fighting. So they did. And you're you're like bringing out all the hits, like yeah. Ray Emery. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you remember that game, but the Sabers did a, a documentary, or like not really even a documentary. It's like had a few of the guys who were involved sit around and talk about it, and it made me think about like how that's such a silly thing to pick out of that season. Like I guess that's interesting, but to me, that Chris Jury goal is the most important one that's ever scored in the franchise history. And like I was talking with data about how I wanted to do that. So I don't know if it'll happen or not, but we might, we're going to try, we're going to, we'll, we'll take around a jury. If he doesn't want to do it though, it's, it's pointless. It won't get off the ground. And he's kind of, yeah. He's kinda, I mean, that's, yeah, that's like what I was saying earlier. Quiet, kind of, like yeah. Some of these ideas, it's like, if, if the guy is not going to do, I mean, you know, you can still write, you can still do a very cool thing, you know, without their, um, without their involvement, but you know, it's obvious. There's just certain things that are right. Um, it just wouldn't your, be as the fun access if, really makes it shine. Yeah, right. If the voice of Chris Jury's goal is mostly told by Tim Conley, that's just not as interesting. As, <laughs> you know, if it's if it's told by Chris Jury. Uh, the sportscasts are here with Katie Baker. She's been a friend of the show for a long time since her days at Grantland. Uh, I think she even made an appearance while she was at uh, Goldman Sachs. That's not true, but that would have been funny if you did. Um, and now she's at Ringer, and she wrote a really good piece. We'll kind of finish on this and get you out of here on this so we can go both go back to our boring parenting lives. But you just wrote about uh, 
Terry Francona and how he's innovating and eating, as you put it, dot, dot, dot. Uh, tell me a little bit more about your time and spending with Francona and the Indians. They're, I think, the most interesting story uh, going into the baseball season this year because they're the team with the long drought now, and they're the team with the long drought that was possibly a rain delay not happening away from ending it. And uh, they're really interesting to me, and I was really interested in this piece and maybe just preview it a little bit more, and then we'll make people go to Ringer to fill in the blanks. Yeah, um, I mean, the um, I went to Cleveland in um, late January, and uh, it was the weekend of, like, the, uh, the Cubs, the um, Indian annual tribe fest. And it's, you know, it's just like a fan fest with a lot of autograph hounds and, um, you know, all the, the usual appearances and showings. And, um, so they did, you know, there was a, it was just kind of the almost like, you know, first weekend back at school, I think for a lot of the guys on the team, like they came back and they had some media availabilities and a lot of autograph sessions. And I think spring training was starting, you know, not too far after that. So, um, Anyway, so got to meet Terry Francona. Um, you know, the, the first thing about him is he's just, like, such a warm individual. Like, you know, even during a scrum, he's just chatting with people. I think, like, the first thing he said in the scrum was to, um, like, make fun of another reporter for some question he had asked earlier in the day when they had announced um, that Cleveland was having the All-Star game in a few years. Um, so... Yeah, so I mean, I just, I, you know, I kind of walked around with him um, through FanFest a little bit, saw all of his interactions with the fans, um, you know, and it's, you did, with someone like him, it, what just struck me was that everyone acts as if he's like their best friend. They're all like, Tito, you know, like slapping him on the back. And um, I'm sure it's extremely exhausting, but he, um, you know, gives everyone a, a lot of respect. And so, you know, I just wrote about that. And like you said, that um, obviously the Indians, are in an interesting spot, not only because of the way they finished last season, but all, you know, but also because of the way they finished last season, like they, as he put it, they kind of, um, they showed more than, you know, they, they gave more than they had. Um, he was, he said he was more upset when they lost to the, to Tampa in the wild card game in, I think 2013, um, than he was for this just because that just felt like such a gut punch and this, he felt like they really, you know, it was, you know, it was like you said, it was a rain delay away. Um, you know, but the, the other thing I wrote about is that he's doing, he just has some interesting thoughts about, you know, how he's using his bullpen. And um, obviously getting Andrew Miller was, um, gave them kind of such a unique weapon that he has been, um, you know, harnessing in an interesting way that, you know, I don't think every baseball mind would necessarily do. Um, so, you know, there's that element of it too, just kind of how he's, um, he's got, a, he's got a good roster to work with and now they have Encarnacion and, um, it's fun to watch, you know, a, a, a curious person like who has like good quality tools to work with and to see like what they're going to come up with. Right. And they'll get some of his pitchers back. He didn't have last year. And Jeff Passon talked yeah. me into watching the baseball classic a couple weeks ago. Uh, when he was on, and I did watch a lot, and Lindor just sticks out. I mean, he's just going to be so great. And, I mean, he was great 
you know, during the playoffs last yeah. year, you know, like where the playoffs yeah, started he and was I like, barely heard of him. He was him. definitely like the young guy that like, um, it was funny to hear him talk about Frank Kona and, um, but you know, he said he's just like such a good guy and he let, he, you know, he lets everybody be themselves. Um, so, you know, it's, when you have someone like young like that, like you, you hope that they've got, you know, a good manager that's going to like help, help them, help them bloom. Right. And he's just, I mean, I know the U.S. put a pretty good beating on uh, Puerto Rico last night, but still it's like that guy's just making plays like everywhere. He's just – seems like he plays three positions or something. Like he's just super good. So I, I think the Indians are a really interesting and really exciting story. And Katie wrote uh, a lot about their manager, Terry Francona, on TheRinger.com, and you can go find that there. And you can also find uh, Katie on uh, – Twitter, she is, what are you at, Katie Bakes there? Is that right? Katie Bakes. Katie Bakes. Oh, Katie Bakes, at, at yep. Katie Bakes there. And um, she will be ready for the Rangers this season for the playoffs. You ready uh, for a Rangers Yeah, I'm, I'm totally ready yeah. to, like, kind of, not that I haven't been paying attention, but right. it's a little different when I'm not writing a weekly hockey column. Um, but, yeah, I was very excited. And, uh, honestly, I'm excited. I'm I guess I'm just pessimistic. Like I, I don't believe in my heart that the Rangers are like winning the cup this year, which right. probably means they have their best shot to do it. It's like when the Sharks, like everyone gave up on the Sharks and then they went to the final. Um, but honestly, like I did like a Washington Wizards piece. So I spent some time in DC, and like it, I've always been like a big OV supporter, and I'm I'm wavering between sort of like going all in on like get OV his cup. Um, but, you know, if they play the Rangers in the playoffs, it's not like I'll, I'm going to, you know, root against the Rangers. But I think any series other than that, I'm like, I'm going I'm going in on the Caps. Well, it's got to suck having Vassi on the team. I mean, that's <laughs> I'm sorry that happened to you. And uh, I was talking to... <laughs> You're not better, huh? I, mean, I was talking to Kenny Albert on my other podcast. <clears throat> and uh, I asked him, I said, how has Vassi been against rivals? I said he was only 2-12-2 and all time against Yale. I'm like, do you notice when the Rangers come to town, does he, you know, hide in the locker room or anything? And he laughed and he said, oh, I won't tell him you said that. I said, no, please tell him. I said, I will, <laughs> I said, I will tweet and repeat his yell record till my dying day. I said, hey, I might have given him a break if he would have signed with the Sabres, but he snubbed us, so forget it. He's dead to me. Except, yeah. Yep. No, yeah, that's like a double whammy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So screw Vessi. But I wouldn't mind seeing Ovi get a cup either on the other side of that, but yeah. And I, so, I mean, it's just, I, it's hard for me to root against that, you know, unless it's to root for Lundqvist. Um, but yeah, that's my, I'm, I, I would just love to see that happen. Those might be the two players in the league. I'd most like to see win a cup Lundqvist and, uh, and Ovechkin try to think of, I guess yeah, like, I was, that are going to be in to the playoffs. The ones. Like I Joe sword and I would put on there. That's a good um, one. Yeah. Well, but yeah, my those were my top three, and then like Kessel. This was before the class last year, so Kessel was Kessel, one of them, yeah. and so we can check that off the list. Um, yeah, and obviously, but, but I guess the, I guess the number one person on my list now has to be John Hayden, um, the <laughs> Yale captain now at the Blackhawks. He's my friend, so I guess I got to put him on the list. But um, yeah, that's he, fair. He's got plenty of time. He's only played three NHL games, so he's got he's got plenty <laughs> of time to figure it out. Katie, thanks for all the time today. It was fun catching up with you. And uh, yeah, is there anything else? Anything else you want to promote? Oh, <laughs> um, 
Nope. I'm trying to think. I'm like, oh gosh, if there's something I should be promoting for my colleagues. Um, no, to check out the ringer.com, um, you know, where you can find all sorts of topics as we've discussed. And, uh, yeah, it's great talking to you as always. Okay. Talk to you soon, Katie. All right. Bye. All right, I want to thank Katie Baker for being on the podcast today. Love the people at ringer.com. Always appreciate them and uh, want to thank Katie. So for the last six episodes for the book club, since we didn't have a book that we were promoting, we've been looking back at other book club books uh, and kind of telling stories about our time promoting the book. And this is a particularly interesting one. It's called Paterno, and it's by Joe Piznanski. And God willing, Joe Piznanski is going to be on this very program next week. Uh, I have been an inch away from booking Joe Piznanski for the last month. <laughs> um, this week, he's on vacation with his family in Florida. He's got a very nice assistant named Jennifer who tells me that she will pick out a day and time for me next week. So I'm taking her at her word right now. All right. But you should, like you as a listener should not be saying in my head, oh, good, uh, Piznanski's on Sportscasters next week because it could easily not be. Sure. Anyway, back in 2011 or 2012, around then, when we were still doing this podcast from Bob's house, so before we were doing the podcast here, yeah. that fall, uh, Joe Piznanski moved into a single-bedroom apartment in State College, Pennsylvania. Yeah. With the idea of staying there for the entire year to follow Joe Paterno around and write a book about him. A few weeks into that journey, the scandal of Sandusky breaks. Now, here's where we come in kind of in a way. We're an insignificant part of the grand scheme of things here, but somehow we played a part. So let me explain it. We had had Joe Poznanski on the sixth episode of this show by uh, some miracle. Uh-huh. Easily, now at the time, he was Sports Writer of the Year. He was still at SI. He had a huge profile. Probably easily the biggest sports writer in the world, not named Peter King at the time. Right. I mean, one of the biggest. And his level of fame maybe has varied a little bit since because he's he hasn't stayed anywhere long enough to kind of like – rebuild like but this is the the height this is like if he was led zeppelin it's like the week after led zeppelin 4 came out (laughs) okay right you know and he comes on our show and kind of told us about his plan so we knew about this book and i actually don't even think it was a secret that he was going to be doing it you know, like sometimes Jeff pa- Jeff uh, Perlman is like this. He'll be like, he'll come on and to talk about his Brett Favre book, and he knows what his next book is, but he won't talk about it. Sure. You know, and I'll figure it out, and I'll email him, and I'll be like, all right, you're right, but don't say anything. Whereas in this case, Joe Poznanski, it was known. Look it, he's not at SI right now because he's in State College, Pennsylvania, right. doing this story on this legendary coach. So the scandal breaks. And obviously, he's not talking. Uh, but John Wertheim is talking to us. And we didn't get John Wertheim on the show that week 
to talk about Joe Pisnanski necessarily. I actually think he wrote an article about like Tiki Barber. Okay. And he, that was initially the reason why he was on. But the way often it is with our interviews, that's just a foot in the door. And then we start talking about something else, you know? And I started talking to John Wertheim, who was still just a writer at SI. Wasn't an editor there yet. And I asked him what he would do if he was in Poznanski's shoes. What would you do? And he gave his comments about what he would do. And this is all in the archives. It's in season, it all happened in season one. So you want to go back on SoundCloud.com slash SportsTaskCasters to season one. You can find this stuff easily. And he said what he said. I don't remember. I don't want to put words in his mouth. But basically he said he would get the fuck out of there. If I had to sum it up. Yeah, he said – I mean Poznanski was – done at that point almost or he said yeah he would scrap it so deadspin somehow picks up on this which i think what happened was easier said than done sherman report picked up on right, it first yep, yep and then so basically sherman report ed sherman reported what wertheim said on our podcast and then deadspin reported what sherman said about what happened on our podcast. When it hit Deadspin, Piznanski read it. Right. So then months, a few months pass, and uh, Wertheim comes back on again. And we start talking in the interview, and he says, you know, I got in a lot of trouble last time I was on this podcast. He and he says to us that Joe Pisdansky called him and complained to him <laughs> about the things that he said on our show. Now, this is the great thing about the internet is okay. So he ends up writing the book Paterno, and we end up getting the okay that we can feature it as the book club book of the month. But just so you know, Pisdansky's doing like three interviews, and that's it. I think you went on Mike and the Mad Dog, which was only Mike by then, I think. Right. Mad Dog is gone. So he went on Francesca, did like an hour on that show. He did like three or four hand-picked, white glove, let's just talk about the things you wrote about Joe Paterno in here. Because basically the decision that Piznanski made was, I'm just going to write a book about Joe Paterno and uh, – the Sandusky stuff is going to be a, a blurb. A blurb. Yeah, essentially. You know, that's basically what happened. So he went and did media where he wouldn't get killed for that. Right. And where he was getting killed, he got killed. Well, I don't think even to this day that Joe Pizdansky knows that this is the podcast <laughs> – where no. John Wertheim said those things that he so. was mad about. Right. I think he has no idea. Yep. And he came on. He's come on the show a few times since. But we somehow, in a very small way, we're not trying to overstate this, got ourselves in the middle of the Joe Piznanski part of the Sandusky-Paterno scandal. So we weren't a part of the 
the scandal itself. No, right. We were a part of Poznanski's part in the scandal. Poznanski, <laughs> the types part, right. Poznanski had a part in the scandal. Yeah, right. Bit, he sure. was in the middle of it. He was on the fucking campus in State College with a one-bedroom apartment thinking, what the fuck am I going to do now? Yep. Right? And then we were a part of his reaction to a writer's opinion on what he should do. The answer to that question. He's sitting in State College saying, what the fuck should I do? I asked John Wertheim, John, if you were Joe, what would you do? John said, and it caused a fight. Yep. And luckily, Wertheim didn't blame us or hold it against us. He's been on this show more than anyone except for Lee Jenkins. Yep. Literally number two. He's been on tens of times. I mean, he's been on almost 20 times. And this happened like the second or third time he was on. And uh, Poznanski's been on a few times since, and hopefully he'll be on again next week. Now, we have not mentioned this to him, and I don't plan on bringing it up next week. I mean, I I think that if he put two and two together, maybe he wouldn't be coming on. And I want him to come on. He's, I think, an incredible guest. He's a great get every time he's a get. It's a a powerful thing to have Joe Poznanski on your show. Sure. You know, but... uh, Do you remember... I know what we said is true, that the part about the scandal being essentially a blurb in the book is that that's what happened. It's not. Yeah, he just. Do you know if he had to change anything else to maybe not. Like, did he have to go back? Maybe he had a part that made him sound like that he put him on a pedestal or something like like. Did he change anything? Well, no, because I don't think he had written a word yet. Huh. Okay. You know what I mean? I gotcha. He basically just got there. Okay, right. You know what I mean? Because if I recall the timing of this, like this scandal broke like in September or October. You know what I mean? So he was like barely there. I don't think he had written a word yet. I, I gotcha. I think he's still in embedded mode. Okay. You know what I mean? And just kind of trying to put this. So he he had a blank sheet of paper. He could have wrote any book he wanted. And that's where the debate was. You know, that's why it was so interesting. Yeah. And everyone wanted to know what is this book going to be? You know, and he made the decision that the book would basically ignore it. And you could debate amongst yourselves whether that was the right or wrong decision. And I have a copy of the book in my hand. I'll be honest, I didn't get through it. I mean, he wasn't going to come out here and talk to me about it. And then I think a few weeks later, another book arrived that someone else was going to come out and talk to me about. But I've saved it. I've never given it away because I know someday I... Someday when it feels like enough time has passed, uh, I'm going to want to go back and read it and, I guess, really give my true feelings about what I think about what he wrote. But he made the decision he made, and, and that's kind of the story of where we fit into the whole thing. So, All right, let's take a break. We'll be right back with Mike McMahon from the College Hockey News. All right, our next guest is from Boston and uh, went to Merrimack College. He is a senior writer for the College Hockey News, and he is making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Mike McMahon. How's it going, Mike? I'm not bad. How about you? 
Really good, really good. Uh, last week I had two feet of snow in my driveway. This week it's sixty <laughs> degrees. So. Yeah, we had sort of the same thing. We had a, I think it was two weeks ago. We had a lot of snow, and no, it was last week. Yeah, no, it was last week. We had a lot of snow, and now it was. It's colder today, though. It's like twenty-five today, but it, it was warmer earlier in the week. Yeah, I think we've, we're doing an every other day thing here. I think we had a, we yeah. had a twenty-five, we had a sixty, a twenty-five, a sixty. Uh, I'm also excited because the March Madness, which has been void mostly of the madness part this year. Uh, will give way, at least in my world, uh, now to the uh, NCAA hockey tournament for a bit. And I love ta- I love this tournament. Uh, I've loved this tournament since I was a little kid. My brother won this tournament in 2013. And um, I love the chance to talk about it, so I'm glad that you're here to do it with me. Absolutely. All right, so let's start here. Uh, let's start with Harvard. How unfair is it that Harvard has to play Providence in Providence? And why does the tournament let that happen? This is two years, or the second time in what, three years that this has happened? Second time in three years, yeah. I think the first one two years ago was a little more of an eye-opening move. They just sort of naturally fell in Providence this time. I mean, when they... When you go with where they were placing the number one seeds closest to home, the way the bracket integrity sort of worked itself out, it just so happened that they sort of naturally fit into Providence. They didn't really have to move anything around for them to get them there this time around. It was a bigger issue, I think, two years ago when you had Miami was traveling out here to play essentially a road game. I mean, at least in this case, you can look at it and go, well, yeah, you know, Providence is right down the street from that building. Uh, but Harvard's not that far away either. So if the Harvard right. fans want to travel, and of course that's always a big if, yeah, uh, but if the will. Harvard fans want to travel, it's it's 40 minutes or 45 minutes from Cambridge. It's not a big deal. Uh, so I, I, I think they did some more maneuvering to get them there two years ago. They sort of naturally fit there this time around, and they're playing another local team. Uh, it's a little weird. I mean, they get the benefits kind of of being a host without actually having to be the host. Um, but I don't think it's as big of a deal this time as it was two years ago. Yeah, and and I guess being, you know, having a brother on the team that was, I think, most affected by the unfairness of it two years ago has made me a little bit sensitive to it. I did read on College Hockey News, and everyone should check this out. There's an article up there. Uh, someone did an interview. I don't remember who it was. I'm sorry. But someone did an interview with someone from the committee, and they kind of explained – the, their process and he made some good points it's just i think in general you know and i made this point a few years ago and it needs to be a point going forward whether it's about providence this year or whatever you want to move a one seed or a two seed and maybe even a three fine with four seeds should not be given home games for attendance when in reality doesn't make that big of a deal in the attendance anyway, unless you're talking about a team like North Dakota or someone like that. I mean, Providence is not going to, playing in Providence is not going to make that big of a difference from what it would have been without them, I don't think. I don't disagree with you. I mean, to be honest with you, I'd like to see them 
move ones and almost sort of make it a policy that we will move ones and twos only right. for attendance purposes, and and that's it. If you're a three or a four, you're a three or a four. If you naturally fall in, in a region that's close to home, great. If you don't, then you don't. And uh, I mean, I, I've even I've even brought up, hey, you know what? And I don't think they'll ever do this because they are too worried about attendance. I would say just accommodate, you know, attendance from the number one standpoint. Put the number ones closest to home in order, one, two, three, four, and then do a, a natural bracket, and wherever it falls, it falls. They'll never do that because there's changes they can make to save money from a travel standpoint. There's changes they can make uh, to try to help attendance. Like you said, I don't think it matters that much, but I, I would like to see them stick with that bracket integrity as much as possible. Uh, and I, I guess in an ideal world, that's what they do. Now, I don't know what that would create. I mean, you could end up with some regionals where when you look at Denver this year, if you were to just place the number one seeds closest to home and then say we're going to let let the chips fall where they may with the rest of the seeding and just do it as a natural one through 16 type bracket, Denver doesn't really have a closest to home regional. I think, you know, their, their closest one is probably Fargo, Fargo right. and it's like a 13-hour drive. So, I mean, they don't really have a closest regional. So that's where it could get a little sticky, you know, because you get some of these things where what if you got a team like Denver this year or another situation where you have a team that, they don't really have a closest to home. They're flying no matter what. Uh, you know, then you can try to ma- maximize it, I think, with some other things. That's why, that's why I think Denver is not in Fargo. That's why I think Denver is in Cincinnati, because Duluth, even though Fargo's already sold, Duluth is closer to home. It saves them the travel there. So there's some of the moves I get. But like you said, I, I agree with not, not awarding a four-seed a home game if you don't have to. In, in 2015, uh, Providence didn't have to be in Providence. I don't right. think any of the projections that we had or other websites had them in Providence. They did that for attendance, and, and I, I do think it, it hurt you know Miami that had to go in there and, and play a, a road game. I mean, it's, it's, it is what it is. They had to go in and play a road game. Right, and it really was a huge, huge favor for Providence because they got to play a Miami team who at the time uh, was injured uh, and fading and not the team that they were that – like kind of earned them that position, you know, like uh, they like in basketball. I remember the one year the 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 star in Cincinnati broke his leg, and uh, you know, so they gave them a two seed instead of a one. You know, like that might have been a consideration with the Miami team. You know, they had stars not in that game, so you know they weren't the same team. And for Providence to be able to play them uh, instead of BU. I mean, that was a huge, huge break for them. So, um, still annoyed by it. But uh, anyway, let's stick with that 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 uh, that 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 region there for a second. Let's talk through it a bit. Uh, Harvard has been awesome uh, this year. I've got to see them a lot, and man, they're they're really good. They have a lot of team speed. They can score on a lot of different lines, uh, but I don't know how great their goaltending is. Uh, tell me what you like and don't like about Harvard uh, and uh, what you think about this bracket in general uh, with Western Michigan and Air Force uh, being the automatic qualifier from Atlantic Hockey and not being a four seed. I love to see that. That's great. Uh, it's great for Atlantic Hockey. Uh, let's talk about the East Regional. We've already said it's in Providence. Uh, break it down for me. I know it was ten to zero. I think on uh, CHN uh, with people 
uh, picking Harvard to advance, which makes me nervous. Anytime everyone's picking the same thing, that makes me nervous. But uh, I understand why Harvard has been awesome. Yeah, and you know what? I have some of the same concerns that you do. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, their goaltending is going to have to be good throughout this entire tournament, and I'm not sure it's good enough. I don't think that they have the best goaltending in the tournament. You know, no. I think that's that's a pretty fair thing to <laughs> right. say. Yeah. Um, but they, they, they're going to need him to be really good. <laughs> and he was. I mean, he was last weekend in the ECAC finals in Lake Placid, uh, and, and he's played well down the stretch. One of the things, I have Harvard obviously picked coming out of that bracket. Like you said, I think we all do at CHN. The one thing that stands out to me is since they had that little blip in, I think, the middle of January where they lost three in a row, and I, I think one of them was, I think they lost to Dartmouth, I think they lost to RPI, and Union yeah. may have been the other one. I think yep. it was three losses in a row in January. They are undefeated since then. Mm-hmm. But not only are they undefeated, they've outscored opponents 70-28. to 28 over like a 16-game span. Because that was one of the things this week. I was looking at their schedule and how they finished up here, and it's like, you know what? They're, they're not just beating teams. They're kind of annihilating teams. I mean, they're winning games on a nightly basis, 5-1, 4-0, I mean, some of these games just aren't even close. Uh, I, I really think that from a lineup perspective, they might be the deepest team in the tournament. I don't think that they're as good at, at the top end as some of the other teams are in other regions, but... I think they might be the deepest, and and that goes a long way, I think, when you get into games like like you're going to get into now that you're in the NCAA playoffs. Yeah, I watched I watched the uh, the Harvard and Yale series. Uh, I didn't watch game one. I watched game two, and I noticed that even down one in the third, going into that period, you just. You just knew Harvard was going to score two goals in that period. Like you just, like I just knew. Like I had that feeling. Like, yeah, Yale's up one right now, but I'm going to assume Harvard's going to score two here. So if Yale's going to win this game, and some of my uh, friends were seniors, and if those guys are going to play another game, they're going to need to score more goals. It's it's not a team you can hold off, uh, and um, it's just because the scoring can come from anywhere, and that's what I. That's what's uh, really impressed me about them this year. But I do wonder a little bit about have they did they peak a little early? That you know that's a good point, and that's what they're going to need to prove. I think going into the tournament because we, we've seen them have runs in the past, not real recently, but we've seen them have runs in the past where they've, uh, like you said, I think peaked a little too early and they've played well, but just can't get it done come championship time, come tournament time. Uh, and, and I'm a little more confident in the pick than I usually am because they got the job done in Lake Placid last week. Uh, you know, I really, I, I said it to somebody going into the, the semifinals at the end of last week. I was like, if they blow this in Lake Placid and lose in the semifinals, or even if they lose in the finals, uh, you know, you're going to have serious doubts about what they're going to be able to do in the NCAA tournament just because you've seen Harvard go and have a good regular season so many times and just blow it come playoff time. Right. But they... They they won that tournament fairly convincingly last week in Lake Placid. I mean that Cornell that Cornell game. I had someone tell me I didn't I didn't see it. I was at the Hockey East Championships. I, I didn't see those games. But one of the people we had that was there said, "Hey, you know what? It was a four one game, and it wasn't even really that close." Yeah, Cornell is uh, too so, slow for them. Not a good matchup. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I mean, I think they have a legitimate chance here, and, and it comes down to me again that depth. I, mean, I, I just don't know. 
they're definitely not as skilled at the top as uh, most of the other one seeds. You know, I think the the top lines on the other one seeds are all better, especially Denver. But uh, there's just something about this team. I think there's a depth here, and like you said, they can sort of score from anywhere. Uh, and that's, I think, an advantage when you get into some of these deeper games where you, you might rely. And it might be your third line that makes a difference uh, in some of these games, even your fourth line that will make a difference. So uh, that's why I like them coming out of the regional for sure. Yeah, and last thing I'll say about them, and we'll move on to the next one, was in 2015, man, did they blow it. I mean, before they even stepped on the ice, the number one seed in their bracket had been eliminated by the Atlantic Hockey Champion. I can't remember who it was right now. Oh, RIT, I think. Uh, and all they had to do was beat UNO, who's a really weak team, uh, and man, did they blow it. And I think maybe uh, that experience, as uh, a lot of players on the team uh, played there, I actually think that that experience might even help them. So I, I would tend to agree with you that I'd be surprised, I think. I think they're the team I'd be most surprised if they weren't in Chicago, in the whole bracket, just because of kind of the way it, has played out and I guess a few different factors and maybe the closeness and how much I've seen them, but, uh, uh, that's where that's that. Let's move on. Uh, the West regional is really interesting, uh, because it's in Fargo and I, I laughed when I referenced that interview with the, the guy from the, from the committee. And he, he said something like, yeah, I know there's going to be a few green sweaters in there. Uh, you know, but they're the hosts and I'm, I'm like a few green sweaters. <laughs> what? Has this guy ever seen North Dakota play an NCAA tournament game in Fargo? Uh, that is going to be a beastly challenge for BU, Duluth and Ohio state, uh, to defend an, a def- to beat a defending national champion. Uh, I know Duluth is kind of a balanced team. Uh, uh, maybe uh, in vain of Harvard a little bit. I don't know that they have a like Alex Iafalo, who's a Buffalo native, where I'm from. Uh, I guess led their team in points. I don't know that he's necessarily a superstar. Uh, when you think of a a number one seed and their top scorer, um, I've always kind of hated Big Ten hockey. I don't know that I think Ohio State's a real threat, uh, and BU obviously has a ton of young talent. Uh, can they put it together? But man, for a three seed, I I I love where I'm sitting. If I'm North Dakota, what do you like about the West? I'm actually probably one of the few people that picked BU today. Uh, I have Duluth coming out of the bracket, which a lot of people do, I think. But uh, I, there's just something about, and I've seen BU a lot this year, and when they haven't played well, when when there have been games where they've just laid an egg, they've tended to come back in a pretty strong way. Uh, and, and I think part of it is that they are so young that they've had games this year where they just look terrible. I mean, I saw a Merrimack team beat them in, in January twice, uh, and BU didn't look good either of those nights. And they, they've had some other losses in there where you're just like, oh, man. And one of them was the hockey semifinal last weekend. I did not think they looked good against Boston College at all. Still made a game of it and almost came out in the end. Uh, they scored late to bring it within one, but... Uh, there's just there's something about this BU team that when they don't play well, I've seen them respond all year, and I think it's a kind of a product of being a young team. You're going to have some ups and downs. Guys get pretty emotional. Uh, they they can ride the wave, I think, of that emotion sometimes. And you're playing North Dakota in Fargo in the NCAA tournament. It's going to be a pretty emotional atmosphere. So I actually like BU in this game. Now, 
that being said, I, I certainly wouldn't be surprised if North Dakota won. Uh, but I, I know when we picked our, made our picks this week, I picked BU in that game, and I've got Duluth beating BU in the regional final. But um, that's going to be, without a doubt, the best atmosphere of the weekend. You right. look around the other four regionals, I mean, no one's going to have an atmosphere like Fargo, and it's because you know the University of North Dakota is only about, what is it, an hour or so, I think, down the road. Yeah, and it was that way in 2015, last time they hosted as well. They had an amazing atmosphere there. Uh, I know Quinnipiac was the unlucky, uh, the unlucky, unlucky participant in that uh, North Dakota first game. There, uh, it's interesting to me that you would pick BU in the first game and not the second. It feels like they're the kind of a team that if they win against North Dakota and and those young kids get some confidence going in the weekend, I would not want to play them that next day. Yeah, it's sort of a double-edged sword. and It's the reason why I picked them to lose to Duluth in the final. I think that you can respond, because I've seen them respond all year, but they've been kind of an up-and-down team in the sense that they can respond, have a really good night, be confident going in the, the regional final, but then you ride in that emotion a little bit, I think, and, and you hear coaches talk about it all the time, of, you know, we don't want to get too high with the highs and too low with the lows, and I think young teams tend to do that, and that's sort of my impression of what we've seen from BU this year. I think they've gotten really high uh, with with their highs and have played really well, and then maybe have gotten a little too overconfident. And then when things haven't gone well uh, in game, in, in the over the course of a singular game, they've gotten down, and I think it's, it's resulted in some bad losses. But they have responded well. Uh, that's why I picked them in the, in the first game in the regional. I just I wonder, you know, how much do you worry about those younger kids because they've got so many of them. Uh, maybe being a little too overconfident, especially against a team like Duluth that they probably haven't seen, probably don't know too much about. Uh, could they could they be a little too much overconfident going into that second game? And I mean, there'd be a lot of North Dakota fans game two, no matter what, even if North Dakota's not in it. But uh, that could be another another road like atmosphere with Duluth, obviously not that far away. What do you like about Duluth? I'm sorry, I cut out. I didn't hear you. There. Oh, that's okay. What do you like about Duluth? What kind of what sticks out about them? What do you think makes them? Uh, you like the Harvard analogy? Similar teams. It's kind of a sum yeah. of parts. Uh, good depth. Uh, maybe not like I said, the high end talent of a BU or North Dakota, but just a nice balanced, effective, twenty five really good D one hockey player type of team. Yeah, I do. I think like just like Harvard. I think they're nice and deep and. Uh, they've also been really consistent all year. I mean, they haven't really had any of those stretches where I think they haven't played well or, or uh, have a, a string of bad games. I mean, they've been pretty consistent all season long. They've probably been, uh, aside from Denver, you know, the second most consistent team in the country. So uh, I just think that, and again, that goes back to their depth a little bit, and uh, I think that that's a, a big reason why I think we'll see them in Chicago uh, along with Harvard. In the Midwest, it's in Cincinnati. I, I giggle at how much it seems like Cincinnati is hosting this tournament, uh, especially when you have a hockey city like Buffalo. seems to never be a part of it. Um, but uh, they'll be in Cincinnati this weekend, I'm sure. There'll be someone there. I, don't, I mean, I don't know how many people. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure there'll be friends and family of the, the kids in the games. Uh, I don't know beyond that. Denver has an awesome, awesome player uh, who's been unbelievable since Christmas and the kid from Finland. Uh, and, of course, uh, they have Butcher, 
who's a uh, Holy Baker finalist, and they have Terry, who is a star of the World Juniors. This is a team with high-end talent. Uh, they're the number one overall seed in the tournament. Uh, they play Michigan Tech, who's the only team uh, that wouldn't have made the tournament without winning their conference tournament. Uh, I don't think either of us are going to focus on them much. Um, Union and Penn State's an interesting game. Again, I'm not a big, I'm not a big ten guy at all. Uh, I think Vecchioni and and Fu are awesome. Union plays a really fast uh, game. I think Union's a really great team, and I think the game I want to see the most uh, this weekend is I want to see Denver and Union, and uh, I think that could be a really fantastic game. Uh, Denver, I think, is is too talented, but. Tell me what you think about the Midwest Regional and how you break it down. That's how I have it picked. I've got Denver and Union with Denver coming out of the regional. Um, I, I, the Denver game, you know, in the first round, I just like I said, I don't think that Michigan Tech matches up well. Obviously, uh, they wouldn't have been in the tournament had they not won the WCHA. They're the only team, you know, with Air Force uh, getting the auto bid, but also finishing in the top. Uh, I think it was the top ten or no, top fifteen or top twelve, whatever it was. The pairwise that they yeah, were enough for a um, seed. Yeah, I, mean, I, just, I don't think Michigan Tech is going to have a fun night against Denver, uh, even if the atmosphere isn't going to be there. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a very fun night for them. And then in the second game, uh, you know, Penn State's style of just barraging people with shots, I don't know if you can do that in games like this. You know, that might work against some weaker teams throughout the course of the regular season. Uh, and it even might work against some good teams because, you know, they had a, a decent run in the Big Ten and obviously – uh, had a good weekend last weekend, but you know, I'm just not sure when you get into games like this, especially against a team like Union, that you're going to be able to have enough possession to shoot the puck as much as they do. And if they aren't able to put 40 or 45 shots on goal, whatever their average is, I mean, it's up there, it's crazy. Uh, I don't know if they're going to be able to have success. So I just don't think that their style is very conducive to, to winning tournament games or playoff games. Uh, it worked last weekend, but again, I think you could argue the strength or the you know you could argue the relative strength of the Big Ten. Uh, I'm not overly like impressed with you. You know, like like with you, I'm not overly impressed with them uh, as a conference. And I, I think that once you get into some of these tougher games against teams that are more apt to be able to grind you out a little bit, I don't think that that style is really going to work. So I've got Union and Denver in the regional final, and I got Denver heading to Chicago uh, along with Duluth and Harvard. And you know, I. I I think a lot of people have made the same things as me, which, again, like you were saying earlier, gets you a little nervous. But uh, at the same time, I mean, there's some of these teams are just so strong right now, I'm not sure that I'd really be comfortable picking anybody else. Do you think Vecchioni should win the Hobie Baker? I think it's between him and Aston Reese. Uh, if you want to make the argument that Vecchioni's team went further, I think that you can do that. I mean, I'm, I'm not always a big fan of, oh, you know, team success has to be part of it. I think Aston Reese is a terrific player. Uh, but Vecchioni is, is right behind him, too. Uh, the only argument, I think, I think I'd go with Aston Reese uh, a, a little bit. I think I'd give him a little bit of an edge, and the only reason is is he did it this year with his line mates just constantly fluctuating. Uh, he normally plays with the Stevens brothers. They were both out large, uh, large portions of the year, missed significant time. Uh, so he was doing it with different guys on his line almost every single night. Uh, that, to me, was pretty impressive. But, yeah, I think they should both be in the top three for sure. And if it went to either one of them, you know, I really wouldn't have many complaints either way. Interesting, interesting. 
man, nothing cooler though than uh, finishing your last home game with a walk-off penalty shot goal. So <laughs> that was unbelievable. Yeah, <laughs> it was like I think it was like the same night that in the Minnesota high school tournament they had a team think they win in overtime and then have the goal taken away and then win again. And then they also we also had Union win a game, have the goal taken away, but then get a penalty shot instead and win. It's just a kind of a weird uh weird weird thing. Like two different games everyone had to pick up all their shit that they threw around after the <laughs> <laughs> thing and they won. Uh the Northeast is the last one we gotta talk about. Um Minnesota's the number one seed uh here again. I'm not a Big Ten guy, and I love Peterson, and I'm all over Notre Dame winning this first game. Um, Cornell, to me, is what Cornell has been for 50 years. Uh, they're going to come at you in this big, they're this big red blob coming at you, and they're all tall and slow, and uh, they they have the benefit of playing in their older, smaller rink where they can bang you all around all night. It's a nightmare. Going there is a nightmare. My brother broke his leg there. It's just everything about that place gives me uh, chills. Uh, and Massachusetts Lowell has just become this unbelievably consistent program at Hockey East that doesn't get the buzz that you know the BUs and the BCs do. But man, have they put together a stretch in the last five or six years that is so impressive to me and not talked about enough, I don't think. Um, I'm going to pick Notre Dame uh, just on the strength of the goaltending and take a risk in this bracket because I can't pick all number ones, and I wouldn't pick Minnesota anyway. Uh, but I think it's going to come down to Notre Dame and Massachusetts Lowell. Uh, that's kind of where I stand. Tell me what you think about uh, about the Northeast. We're in agreement again. I think Minnesota is the most vulnerable number one seed for sure. Uh, they, they've got to come in and, and, you know, it's not a, really a home game for home, for Notre Dame. They're not anywhere near South Bend, but, uh, Notre Dame has made these trips all year long out East playing in hockey East. Uh, and I just think they're a stronger, deeper team. I think, I think Notre Dame's a better team at the top of the lineup. Uh, I think that Notre Dame is a much better team in goal. And yeah, I, I think you know, they're similar. I think from a style standpoint, uh, they both want to play the same way, but I, I just think that Notre Dame's a better team. So, uh, I've got the Irish beating beating Minnesota in the first round, and like you, I got Lowell over Cornell in the second game. I, I think Norm Bazin is the best coach in the country right now uh, for a number a of reasons. Job, you know, yeah. yeah, X's and O's. I think you know he's right there, but also you look at how they play their system, and this gets brought up a lot. People ask me all the time. Well, Lowell's played so well the last four or five years. They've won three hockey titles now. They're in the tournament. I think five out of the last six years under Bays. And why aren't they getting? Why aren't they going after you know the, the five star recruits, the national development team kids, the kids that we all track since they're fourteen years old? Why is it Lowell recruiting those guys? And it's because those guys don't fit the system that Norm Bays wants to play. I mean, right. they're they're a very much a blue collar team. That's not to say they don't have some talent. I mean, Joe Gamardella and CJ Smith each have fifty points this year. They've got some guys who can score, but they're going after older players, players that are going to play the way that they want to play, and it's worked for them. I mean, you cannot argue the success that they've had as a staff, and, and uh, obviously Norm is, is leading up that charge. It's been unbelievable, uh, especially from where they came from 
where they would they would have runs of some pretty good years and then some runs where they would be rebuilding and win you know singular digit games. Uh, but it's it's amazing, not only I think what they've been able to do, but uh, I admire their their dedication to their system and not getting too infatuated with hey we're good now we can go after player X you know who's projected as a top NHL talent if you don't if they don't think that that guy is going to fit with their system they don't recruit him or, or they don't go after him they've they've made it work with guys that are going to play the way they want to play and and the way they want to play has resulted in. UMass Lowell, uh, you know, hanging a number of championship banners in their ring, so I don't think anybody can argue with that. And I think they made a, a great decision at one point. I don't know exactly when it was, but I think they they sat down and said, look it, we're not beating out BC and BU for the studs in Massachusetts, so let's let's go to the USHL and like you said, let's find the kids that fit the system that can beat those kids, and they've done a yeah. great job recruiting out of the USHL um, when my brother was at Sioux Falls, I think four or five players on his team ended up at Lowell. Uh, Chad Ruedel was there. Um, uh, the goaltender was there. I can't remember everyone right now, but they just do a great job recruiting from that league. Um, and man, I, I'm so I just so impressed by them. I just uh, I can't can't say enough. Uh, uh, Somebody told me last week a story uh, about they had a. a luncheon or dinner with season ticket holders a couple of years ago. I think it was right after they went to the Frozen Four. And one of the season ticket holders asked Bazin, like, why, that same question, why aren't we going after, you know, the the top-level kids? Now that, you know, we've been to a Frozen Four, we won a Hockey East title, why why can't we go get those kids? Jack Eichel grew up literally down the street from UMass Lowell. He grew up, you know, two miles away, the, the next town over. And Norm replied to the question with, yeah, I, I called Jack Eichel. He didn't call me back. Like, we're not going to get those kids not here. We need to go get kids elsewhere that haven't grown up just wanting to play at BC or BU. And like I said, I mean, they've done an incredible job of recognizing those kids, and, and not a lot of them are local, and they don't have to be. I mean, they're finding teams that can compete with those guys, not just compete with them, but beat them, and, and they've beaten them a lot. Right, and it's almost like they have the advantage of being in that area. So they're familiar with the players that are going to end up at BU and BC. It's almost like they're like, hey, we can predict the roster that those guys are going to have. Now let's go to the Midwest. Let's watch USHL. And let's bring back the kids that we think will match up best against those first-round draft picks. And let's just beat them with system and hard work and chip on a shoulder and that kind of thing. And Clay Witt was the uh, uh, was a goaltender I was thinking of, but he ended up at um, at uh, Northeastern, not uh, Massachusetts Lowell. So I was uh, ma- mistaken there. But man, uh, again, just a, a great job. Uh, who do you like in this, this bracket? Are you taking Lowell then, or are you taking Notre Dame, or where are you going here? No, I'm, I'm taking Lowell. Yeah, okay. I got I've got uh, Denver, Duluth, Lowell, and um, Harvard as my Frozen Four. I think I have Harvard, Denver, Notre Dame, and North Dakota. And uh I think uh I think I'll have Denver as my champion. I think uh I think they got a top end talent on defense and top end talent on offense and uh 
I really, really just like that team a lot. And I thought they were close last year. I was actually surprised how well they did in the regionals compared to not doing so great in the semifinals of the Frozen Four really surprised me. Uh, so maybe it's one of those cases where they needed to lose to win, and they're even better than they were last year. So I'll take Denver to win it. Who do you got? I've got Harvard over Denver in the final, but I just, I've been saying this all week. I'm not confident about it at all. <laughs> I do think that we will see Denver in the national title game, uh, and I do think that Harvard will probably be the one that goes up against them. Um, and then it could be a flip of the coin. You know, uh, I, if if Harvard can make it that far, if they're good enough, if they get the goaltending, if they're good enough to make it to the national title game, I don't see them losing. Uh, but then again, you know, I could also see them getting up, uh, not upset, but I could also see them losing in the semifinals where it's their first time there, and sometimes the eyes get a little too big. Um, you know, you, you never know. You never know. But I, I've got Harvard over Denver as my national champion. Let me ask you one more, then we'll do a couple quick hitters, and then we'll get out of here. Uh, sure. You got Harvard in a position to win a national championship. That'd be three for the ECAC uh, since 2013 and a runner-up in Quinnipiac last year and a runner-up in 2013 in Quinnipiac again. Uh, I know you're kind of a Hockey East guy at heart, um, but talk about the development of the ECAC and kind of where you think they stand in the national landscape uh, compared to, you know, the old cliche of, you know, the ECAC and I think the lack of respect that they still don't get, especially from... uh, the North Dakotas and the, the Western teams, I think really underestimate them the most, but talk a little bit about the ECAC real quickly and the development of the league and, and kind of where you see them uh, in terms of uh, uh, the college hockey picture in general. I think the NCHC and hockey sort of go back and forth and rotate as the two best team, two best conferences in the country. There's always one year where the NCHC will have more teams in than hockey. So the next year it flips. And this year, it's the NCHC's year. But whenever one of those teams is on top, whichever team is, is sort of 1A or number 2, or whatever, whichever conference is 1A or one or number 2 right behind, whichever conference I think is, is the best in the, in the country that year, uh, I think the ECAC is right with them, you know, really. It, it, you look at their success in the national tournament, and, and the biggest thing, I mean, the biggest thing that I really think tells you that the ECAC is just as good as Hockey East and just as good as the NCHC is Quinnipiac not really being interested? Hockey East has an opening. They're going to be looking for a 12 school. Quinnipiac gets brought up all the time as a potential 12 member, and everyone I've talked to and everyone that my colleagues have talked to say that they're just not interested. Why leave? They're in the ECAC where they're making national tournaments and they're making national title games. They haven't won one yet, but you know what? I think they will at some point. There's no reason to leave, and it's because the league is just as good as Hockey East is most years. So it really, I think that to me is the biggest, the biggest thing that you can look to and say, you know what, it's not just a theory. Like the ECAC really is as good as Hockey East as most years because 15 years ago, like take Vermont, for example, 15 years ago Vermont made the move because at the time Hockey East was a step up, uh, both in terms of competition and in terms of, uh, you know, prestige around the country, Hockey East was a step up. You've got an opportunity now for some ECAC schools to, make another step up in the Hockey East if it were still a step up and they're not doing it. 
And I think that just goes to show you that the league is just as good as hockey used to. Yeah, I'm going to be really surprised if that spot gets filled by an ECAC team. You know, I don't think it will. In yeah, fact, I don't think it's going to get filled for a while. I think they're going to stick with 11 and stay with 11 until something comes along that makes a lot of sense and works. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I know. I, I've, I've heard what you've heard about Quinnipiac, and for so many reasons, I just don't think it makes sense. Not even just like uh, better versus not better. I, I just think they're in such a great, they're such a great spot. On their hill there. You know what I mean? They're in such a yeah. great spot, and uh, they have a beautiful facility, and I don't think they would want to give up that rivalry versus Yale. You know I mean? that, yeah. that That's huge for them. It's not as big for Yale, and that's why they win so many of those games because those that 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 game means so much to them every year. Those two games mean so much to them, and, I, and Yale just fails to match their intensity over and over and over again. And... Uh, you know, and then when they did match their intensity in a national final, that's the one time Yale's beaten them since 2013. The only time Yale still hasn't beat them in a game uh, since that's crazy. Since that's crazy. Since that game, since that night. So, but thank God it happened. But uh, let's just real quickly just tell, just give me uh, the first thing that comes to your mind when I ask you. I'll do five of these and we'll go. Who do you sure. think is the team we didn't talk about enough in this tournament? Uh, I know I'm supposed to be quick here. Uh, pro- probably Cornell. Okay. You know, I, I I agree with you that they're they're kind of big, kind of slow, uh, but they've only lost eight games, and, and they did a lot of good work on the road this year, away from home earlier in the year because they their almost first half of the season was exclusively exclusively on the road. Um, so they, I, I'd say Cornell. Yeah, Anthony Angelo is a really good player too. I like him a lot. Uh, who do you think? If you sat down an NHL fan and made him watch all these games, who are the two or three players do you think they'll be talking about the most at the end of uh, at the end of the tournament? Uh, I think they'd be talking about Will Butcher for sure. Uh, I think he's the best defenseman in the tournament. I think C.J. Smith and Lowell has really come on strong this year, and especially in the playoffs, and it's just been a monster for them lately. I think you'd be talking about him for sure, and then. Uh, let's go with a goalie, and I think I think Tanner Gillette is probably going to be someone that stands out from a goaltending perspective. Um, and and there and there's certainly some others, but those are the, that's that's a forward, a D, and a goalie that I think are uh, you know near near the top of their games right now. Do you think there's a player not drafted that's still in this tournament that can make an impact for an NHL team in the Stanley Cup playoffs this year? Um, no, probably not. Not not this year. Do you, you know, a year or two down the road, yeah, for sure. Uh, but I, I don't, there's no one that comes to the top of my mind that this year could sign and, and jump into a playoff run unless I'm just missing someone obvious. Fair enough. Do you think, um, damn, I had one and then I was listening to you and I let it, <laughs> I let it slip on me. Uh, we said we, we've been really dismissive of the Big Ten uh, in this, and I know that you have talked about how their their coaching job is open. RPI's coaching job is open. You've said that you think Michigan State is the best coaching job. Go ahead and say why. Money. I mean, it's purely money. If they want to invest in their program at Michigan State, they can do it. 
better than most other schools in the country can, and it's because they've got money. I mean, that's the only reason. Uh, I think they, of the openings right now, they can pay the most, and they can give you the most resources if they want to, just because they have the most money. I mean, that's, that's what it completely boils down to to me, is money, money, money. And, you know, I, I don't think the Big Ten is a particularly strong hockey conference, but Big Ten money is a real thing. And you look at what Wisconsin did last year, and uh, the the money they threw around with Granado and, and the sort of dream team staff they've put together. Michigan State could do the same thing if they wanted to. Uh, we'll see if they do, but they could certainly do the same thing if they wanted to. Right, it's the only league that has a network, you know? So. Exactly, <laughs> that, that, yeah. That's a big thing. Uh, give me a team or two that didn't make it this year that you think, when we talk next year, uh, could be a contender for the national championship. I think Wisconsin is a team. I mean, they were almost there, too. They were sort of right on the brink. Uh, but I see Wisconsin as being a team that could make some noise. They they are sort of starting to grow this year, and uh, such a big turnaround for them, you know, coming out of where they were a year ago. Uh, I think that they could have a big season next year. Um, you know, I, Boston College was another team that almost made the tournament, but... I like them a lot moving forward, too, and they're going to lose some guys. I mean, Ryan Fitzgerald, obviously, is going to be gone. He's a senior. And, Colin White. Uh, there's been, been some rumor that uh, Colin White may sign here soon. It hasn't happened yet, but uh, I mean, BC is BC, and if they can figure it out uh, and recruit the way that they've always been recruiting, they're going to be back pretty quickly. Um, and those, those are, I think those are the two that strike me as being the most that, hey, if they, they weren't in here, but they were close, and I, I could see them making big big strides next year. Mike McMahon writes about college hockey for College Hockey News, which is an awesome website and a great app. Uh, it's a must-have app if you like college hockey. You probably already know that, though. Uh, you can follow Mike on Twitter. He's at Mike McMahon, C-H-N there. Uh, he also does some other things. You can read it in his bio. Uh, writes about Merrimack Hockey. He's done that for a long time. Uh, is there anything else you want to promote? CollegeHockeyNews.com, obviously. Anything else you want to promote? Yeah, check out the, uh, College Hockey News all weekend. We're we'll, we going to have someone. I believe we have people on site at every regional. I know I'm going to be in Manchester. Uh, we've got two or three people down in Providence. We've got somebody in Cincinnati, and I'm pretty sure we've got a couple of people out in Fargo, too. So uh, we'll have coverage there all weekend long, and then a couple weeks, same thing. I think there's five of us that are going to be in Chicago for the Frozen Four. So we'll get you covered. Mike, why do I have it in my head you're a big wrestling guy? Is that a true? Is that a true story? Uh, it is, yeah, yeah, it, it is. Okay, are you excited about Mania? Uh, not as much as I should be. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why, but just not as much as I should be. Uh, they, they've lost me a little bit. The buildup just hasn't felt very exciting to me. You know, right? Is there a match you're most excited for? That's an excellent question. Um, there's there's some matches that I don't know. I, I feel like there's always the matches you go into and you know what the outcome's going to be, and you're like, yeah, well, it might be a good match, but we know who's going to win. I think there's some here that we don't necessarily know which way they're going to go. Uh, I'm, I guess I'm most excited for Undertaker and Roman Reigns only because I'm, I'm, I might be the last person out there, but I'm holding out a, a sliver of hope that they turn Reigns heel, and I think that could be some fun, but... I don't think they'll do it. What's I'm your? Not, I'm not overly confident. What's your all-time favorite mania? Ooh, that's a difficult question. Um, 
I liked 17, the one in Houston, right after they bought WCW. I thought that was a really good show. I liked the one from San Francisco a couple years ago, too. Um, I think, those sort of personally, 14 was in Boston. Yep. I was a freshman in high school and went to the show. So that one always sort of stands out because I was there. Yeah, that was the night Austin uh, won his first title. Um, it was. What's your favorite Mania match of all time? Favorite Mania match of all time. Um, I'm going to go with Lesnar Undertaker from New Orleans when Lesnar beat him. Just because I still remember where I was, who I was watching it with, and the reaction of the people around me when he actually won that match. (laughs) I remember just saying the whole match like, all right, just pin him already. Like, we know (laughs) the Undertaker's going to win. Like, why do we have to drag this out like you're not exactly, fooling yeah. me with these false finishes i know the undertaker's gonna win come on already but exactly no and that's all it was every year and i think that's <laughs> why that one sticks out i mean look it wasn't like a you know five-star match by any means but it, the like you want to talk about emotion and excitement like i i remember where i was watching that because it was just like i you couldn't believe it well, I'm a little bit older than you, so my favorite mania by far is WrestleMania three, and Steamboat Savage is my favorite match of all time. But yeah, you uh, know that's that, that's a very close second for me. I mean, that's an all time great. Thanks for all the time, and thanks for doing this, Mike. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely, anytime. All right, talk to you soon. Sounds good. See ya. All right, I want to thank Mike McMahon and Katie Baker for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can find this podcast and all episodes of of this podcast on your SoundCloud page, www.soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. The sportscasters at gmail.com is the email. Uh, I think this was the last week of biweekly. I think we're going back to weekly after this. Hopefully that's the case. Uh, the Lonely End of the Ring podcast, uh, soundcloud.com slash Pod. there. On the show this week is Chris, uh, what the hell is his last name? Chris Cook, uh, spelled K-U-C, uh, from the Chicago Tribune to talk about the Chicago Blackhawks. When did you record, or have you yet? Yeah, we did today. Did you it's, get into the Crosby and the Nut Tap stuff? Yeah. Where does, where does he, where does, uh, curious where he stands on Dater? Crosby. Yeah, Adrian stands. He didn't really see it. Now was MF in the guy that fought with me about it on twitter last night okay madden or whatever calling me a podcaster trying to belittle me okay did you see that no yeah washinsky and shope stuck up for me oh really yeah yeah i uh i saw your twitter because it it's funny that night is highlighted by obviously his highlight reel unbelievable goal right and i saw on twitter our buddy matt from pittsburgh says like I'm so lucky every day I get to watch this guy. And then yeah. you sent him the animated or the video of him not tapping Riley and O'Reilly. And I guess that's a thing he does. And I think I just come down to it here. It's, I think it's possible he's the best and also possible that he's not all that likable. Like I, I, I don't. Well, what I said last night on Twitter is like, okay, three significant things happened in the game. Crosby scored the best goal of the year. Yeah, it was unbelievable. I mean, he got that one hand. It's unreal. Ristolainen threw a dirty check mm-hmm. that deserved the penalty it got and saw a discipline. 
which I did think was extreme, but whatever. And Sidney Crosby made a scumbag play where he speared a guy in the nuts. Right. Why can't all three of those things be true? Right. Yeah. And anytime you ask, <laughs> that's the thing. Any comment thread you get on with, a, especially like a Penguins fan, or maybe it's a Canadian thing. I don't want to lump them all in there, but everyone's like, oh, yeah, you just hate him because he's not on your team. It's like, no, of course he's the he's the best. I like him. Right. But it, but it is dirty. And it wasn't even like he went to lift the stick type of thing. He hit a guy from behind in the nuts that wasn't looking. And I don't know. I don't have – I'm not a uh, 70s hockey drop-the-gloves type of guy. But if you want to hit a guy for something – he because everyone's like, oh, he must – O'Reilly must have done something earlier in the shift. It's like, okay, hit him in the face or something like when he's looking at you. So Mark Madden tweeted, Sid scored the goal of the season. Skid got his bridge work rearranged. Gunso got beheaded. But Sid's crotch tap is a story. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, they, I, like you said, they all can be a story. So then I responded to that by saying simply this. All three significant. Crosby's goal was sick. The Risto hit deserves one, two games. Crosby crotching ROR was Bush slash punishable. Yep. And he wrote back, okay, comma, podcaster in quotes. <laughs> okay. And I wrote to him, hey, anytime you can take a low brow shot at someone for no reason, you have to do it, right? And he wrote back, okay, comma, podcaster. Interesting. And then for some unknown reason, he did it again. So three times he insulted me. Oh, the first time was okay, comma, podcaster. And the second time was right on, comma, podcaster. Three insults. So then, thanks to our friends, Greg Wyshkinski, who wrote, Don't worry, comma, it's a find and replace for quote-unquote blogger, I think. <laughs> and then uh, Mike Shope said, Very interesting exclamation point move. Must be discussed. Because in one of the insults, the, the exclamation point is inside of the quotation, and in one, it's outside. <laughs> So anyway, I blasted that guy on the podcast today. We'll see if it starts okay. a big war or not. Anyway, where I wanted to go was I was giving out our information, you know, like our Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and all that. And I have to commend our listeners because uh, last week I fucked up. Okay. I blew it at it. So you know the structure of the show is pretty simple, right? It's we come into a highlight, mm-hmm. then, the fir- then the interview. So when you're editing, it's easy. It's like, all right, so we start with a highlight. Then a fight song. Then the Final Fantasy thing. For the books. Then a fight song. Okay. Then Ronald Jenkins. Okay. Well, when I was recording, I was queuing up Ronald Jenkins and the out song. Because that's what you queue up when you recorded the last segment, right? Those, right. Those two things. And I checked real quick the out song for a few seconds. Played it. Rewound it back. And then... Like two seconds later, I started the segment. So it was real quick. Like I already, oh, okay. I already had. I got gotcha. you. I already had Jenkies up and tested. Found the out song, tested it, turned it down, clicked on the other page, hit play on Jenkies, and started recording. I got gotcha. you. So when I went and edited, when I was far enough, when back. I, I didn't cut far enough or back, forward, yeah, yeah. and I left the fuck up. So there's, if you listen to the show, interview ends. You hear about three seconds of the out song, a pause of about two or three seconds, <laughs> and then, then Jenkins. Okay. So I fucked up. 
So I got a really nice tweet from a listener who I think wanted to say, hey, you fucked up. Okay, but it was a little out of context, and I didn't get it at first. So the message said, what does it say? Here it is. Um, is the Peter Gabriel song after the second interview a new feature? <laughs> so he was either being nice and saying, hey, you fucked up, or he was saying, like, he he, you fucked up. Is that a feature? Yeah, I think he was kind of ribbing you a little bit. That's, right. That's funny, though. So now, I, it was a little out of context. And I didn't get it. Uh-huh. So this is what I say, like an asshole. I said, nothing specific. I just loved how they used it in the Americans, and I wanted to mix it in. Sort of a nod to that show. Okay. <laughs> Which is, because I'm thinking, like, that's why I you played that. That's why it was right. the out song. Like, so then he says, oh, I haven't been watching that show, so it went over my head. So I think he was being kind of nice and the whole time and avoiding like saying you're a fuck up you guys anytime just say you're a fuck up it's okay <laughs> yeah it happens yeah. all right my last thing this week um i'm sure i've talked about it probably probably two last things or so but i i finally got the nintendo switch and i'm happy i did i i know it's not going to compete with a ps4 it's not going to compete with the xbox one as far as just like raw hardware but uh it's fun. The Legend of Zelda is awesome. Man. All right, hold on. I have questions. Yeah. Okay. One, is The Legend of Zelda the only game you have? I have The Legend of Zelda, and I have The Binding of Isaac, which I had for the PC, but I bought it for this too, and I pre-ordered um, Mario Kart, which comes out, I think, in April. Is that the first Mario-related game? Yes, because that Mario Odyssey, which looks awesome too, I think is like a holiday. Like that, that was ridiculous to show that like at the launch event thing. It, does it doesn't come out till the holiday. That that's brutal. Okay, next question. Oh wait, I have a Snipper Clips too, which is like a twenty dollars download game, it's, which is pretty fun. It's pretty. Clever so you have three games, puzzle game. Yeah, right now I have three, and I'll and, have the fourth. Soon. And Zelda's the best. Zelda's great if you like Zelda. I okay. mean, it, it's an it's an awesome Zelda game. What percentage of time do you spend playing it hooked up as a console? Versus a traveling companion. It's literally about 50-50. At first, it was almost entirely a console. Um, the Binding of Isaac is just a great little game to be able to take with you and play. Uh, I haven't really traveled with it much, but I will play. Like, if the kids are watching TV or something, I'll just pop it off and play on the couch. Uh, so it's a cool feature. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a cool feature. It's nice to have it. Has it changed the amount of time you spend gaming on your cell phone? Hmm. I think I do that on different avenues. Like I, I game on my cell phone, like at lunch at work or something like that. It, you know, but honestly, if I had a, I don't have a travel case yet for the thing because if I'm just gonna sit in my car and listen to the radio or something on lunch, I might just take the switch with me if I had a travel case and play Zelda for an hour. Yeah, because like I used to have a DS and I loved it. Yes. Then I got an iPhone and I just never played my DS. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, so I ended up giving it to a kid. It depends yeah. on the games you play, I, I suppose. Um, but I mean, it's the exact same game, so it's not like I have to play a mobile game. I'm playing The Legend of Zelda just on the screen. Did they say there's some kind of issue with saving when you go from? I believe there's no cloud saving, so that doesn't really affect you if you're taking your whole system with you. But if you brought like Zelda to somebody else's house and tried to log in with your account. I don't think it works that way. That has that that hasn't been an issue of mine yet. But uh, I, do I you think, think it it's be. a better system after at this point? Do you think it's a better system than Wii was at this point? I'm not saying to judge the Wii as a full Ooh, entity. I'm saying 
one month into the Wii and everything that was released and where it was versus one month into Switch. You know what? The Wii gets bashed for the same reason a lot of Nintendo stuff did. There wasn't many good third-party games. And maybe toward the end of its lifespan, it was a little bit of a joke. But I don't know if there was a much better launch. I mean, numbers-wise, I don't think there ever... It was so different. Everyone played it. Like It didn't matter if you were into video games at all. You played and enjoyed Wii You had to do that. Yeah, Yeah. So I don't think this is that. But that's kind of good in a way too because the Wii did kind of peter out a little bit later on you didn't want to swing a nunchuck around or whatever did you ever bowl 300 in the Wii bowling i didn't i know Maybe people like... have and i know that people made robots that did but i had like you know. a 260 something but no, i never did yeah. um okay what else anything else about it those are my questions yeah i'm happy to have it uh i understand oh i had one more yeah could you see playing a game like madden or nhl or a sports game on it will it translate yeah i, I mean if the controls are essentially the same, and you can buy that Pro Controller. All that stuff is a little pricey, but it's all—it's a little pricey for all the systems, like Pro Controllers and stuff. It sucks to pay 70 bucks for a controller or yeah. whatever. But when I bought my PlayStation 4 off a kid in the parking lot, I needed to get a second controller, and it was like 55 bucks. It was bullshit, but yeah. it's what it cost. Yeah, so, I mean, that, that part sucks. It feels like – it's almost like – and supposedly – I don't know if it's true with this system, but some of those systems will take a loss. Like the hardware, they're losing money on to sell the software, which seems insane. But I, yeah, I, I seem to, I don't mind spending sixty bucks on a game as much as I do on a controller. But I'm sure eventually I'll get the pro controller, and then it's just a matter of if you need the biggest and brightest and prettiest version of it, it's probably not going to be for the Switch. It's going to be for the uh, PS4, PS4 or Xbox, Xbox One. One. But if you just want something that's a little different and fun and has a Nintendo titles, then it is what it is. Right. I, I mean, as a as a kid, it almost felt like you had to pick one because your parents weren't going to buy you all of them. If, right. But now, as a grown up, I don't know if you have three hundred bucks to spend on this one and you want another one for serious, like for prettier games or whatever, then just buy both. You know. Right. I, I feel about it the way I think uh, we both kind of come around on cell phones. It's like I'm not going to have I'm not going to make a big argument for one over the other, or PS4 over Xbox One, but. They're all good, and they all do their own thing. Like, yeah, I think it's very similar. Like, I would never argue PlayStation Four is better than Xbox One. I just know that that controller for PlayStation is what you're used to. That's I can play that. Right. I can't do the Xbox One. Yeah, if, if, so I just go PS Four. But I don't know that it's better or worse. And if it is worse, fine. I just do that one better. Maybe when my kids are a little older and they're they go to bed at a more regular time and less work at nighttime, like I'll get more into gaming. My my thing has always been to have the Nintendo and have a PC. Like, cause I like the PC gaming stuff. But if people want to have PS4 and a Nintendo, whatever, they're all good. They all do their own, they all, their own thing. Your brother does a lot of PC gaming online and broadcasting and all that, right? Yeah, yeah. I think he pre- pretends in his online persona not to know me. <laughs> I don't think he talks to me much either. If you actually went on to, he his- doesn't follow me on Twitter and he never reacts to anything I say to him. Oh, on Twitter? Yeah, never. Yeah, I don't think I get many responses. From I him think on he would either. prefer that. People in that world do not know that he knows me, <laughs> which is maybe a smart move. I don't know, but yeah, he'll he'll react or he'll interact with me like in his actual Twitch channel, but uh, I don't get many interactions with him on Twitter. I, I I get the feeling like the people that interact with him on Twitter maybe know him on some sort of personal level, like in that world. And right, I'm not in that, and world. we're not in it. Right, because right. I mean, like he's at your house, and we'll be like texting each other, like inside jokes at the house, and like I have a good relationship with him. But it's yeah. like online, he's like 
It's like I'm standing there saying like, hey, Kurt, Kurt, <laughs> over here, Kurt. Yeah. And he just he's not turning around. So, oh, well. All right. One last thing for me today. I never have been much of a Roger Goodell guy. Uh, me and him, you know, we don't we don't we don't run in the same circles. Yeah. We're in different tax brackets. Uh, I like the Saints. Apparently he doesn't. Uh, he likes petty bullshit about footballs. I don't give a shit. <laughs> it turns out we have one thing in common. We both absolutely fucking hate it when NFL games go from touchdown, extra point, commercial, kickoff, commercial. Wow. I didn't hear this. Okay, I got an article. It's by our friend Andrew Buckholtz on awful announcing. I'm going to read some stuff. Because the big thing this week has been about how they're finding new ways to punish end zone dancing, which everyone rolls their eyes about. So I haven't heard that. This is actually good. People would pat him on the back for this. Okay, so here's some things. NFL fans who hate the commercial kickoff commercial sequence have some support from an usual source. Roger Goodell. Goodell, I guess, wrote a letter to fans Wednesday. I didn't read it, but... Andrew did. Okay. Uh, about the NFL plans to reduce commercials and to speed up the pace of play. He also spoke with someone from USA Today about the changes. He told the guy at USA Today that one of the fourth, uh, that one of the biggest things, the kickoff commercial sequence, is one of his biggest complaints from himself and particularly grates on his nerves as well, quote unquote. It's from Goodell here. Every NFL fan has seen an exciting game disrupted in a familiar way. Commercial break, then a kickoff, then another commercial break. It drives me crazy. We call those double-ups, and they occurred 20% of the time on kickoffs last season, and that's too high for us. Goodell went off on those double-ups in his letter, too. Together with our broadcast partners, we'll be working to meaningfully reduce downtime and the frequency of commercial breaks in our game. We'll be giving our broadcast partners increased flexibility to avoid untimely breaks in the action. For example, we know how annoying it is when we come back from a commercial break, kick off, and then cut to commercial again. I hate that too, and our goal is to eliminate it. Okay, so Andrew now goes on to say what some of the flexibility is. And these are also good ideas, I think. Uh, The league is going to be alternating, altering commercial breaks in general. Going from four breaks per quarter as opposed to five, six, five, five. So that means 16 total breaks instead of 21. Okay, good. Okay, but those breaks will be longer. Will be two minutes and 20 seconds instead of one minute and 50 seconds. Thus, there will be 37 minutes and 20 seconds of standard commercials under the new plan versus 38 minutes and 30 seconds under the old plan. So it is less mm-hmm. by a little. Good. Okay, some of these ideas are experiments that I guess with during week 16 last year, uh, and they're based on fan feedback. The other tweaks to commercials are that network can go to break during replay reviews. Good. And there's potential for a break sponsored by one advertiser, similar to what Turner's been doing with the NBA – or for a double box showing a commercial in one box and what's going on the stadium in the other. So like a split screen yeah, thing. Sure. Or eliminating one whole break and saying this break is sponsored by 
and they could do they could do that one time, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if they have to get to a certain number, I mean, do it like a radio show. It feels like a radio show has to get to a certain number of breaks. Do it during inter- like everyone hates replay review. Right. Do it then. And there may be other kinds of sponsor content. Although hopefully those will get a bit better than ESPN's Surface ad last year. I don't remember what that was. Uh, and then he goes on to say other things about Cadell's letter and speeding up the game and other areas. He mentions a play clock, a play clock after an extra point if there's no TV break. Uh, contemplating doing the same after a touchdown. Okay. Bringing a tablet to the referee for reviews instead of having them go to the monitor. Why don't they just go to New York City for reviews? Yeah, I don't know. That is the most – the the NHL has that right, and then they kind of got it wrong. Like, the NHL has a place that reviews it, and then they send, like, coaches' challenges to the little tablet. Just everyone have a central reviewing agency. Standardizing starting the clock after an out-of-bounds play and standardizing halftime length. So. Good. Hey, look at. I still think the guy's a fucking dickhead. <laughs> but even I can admit when I agree.